You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 433. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 3C at the Doubletree Hotel in Durango, Colorado. Today's show is recorded on the 9th of July, 2020. In today's episode, investigators say engine trouble caused the crash of a Canadian aerobatic plane in Georgia last year. Spirit Airlines rescues a family stranded by medical emergency in Turks and Caicos. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, the rare Red Hawk. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 433 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a piloted major legacy carrier based in Atlanta, Georgia for the last 31 and a half years. And I am joined today by my awesome APG co-hosts. First, from her lakeside home in the Carolinas, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. And I'd also like to add to that completely serious and never like joking or She's know, always rock solid. Never laughs. Like just just right on on topic so. never break good to be with you guys looking forward to a great show this is going to be a good one already i can tell oh i hope so all right also joining us podcaster from across the pond in the english countryside world traveler airplane mckitt nope that's the wrong one professional photographer former raf art <laughs> That's all right. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get through this. We're gonna get through this. And from across the pond, from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Great to hear that you're having such a wonderful road trip. I'm amazed you haven't had the car crash yet because this is leading into one. <laughs> it's, it's it's actually uh, turning into quite a train wreck. And luckily we have not. That's the first one today. Yeah, that's the first one. We just rode a train earlier yeah. today. So uh, let me introduce our special guest today. Oh, I, I meant to ask you what you want me to say about you. He, uh, tell us about who are you? Introduce yourself. Uh, let's see. Uh, Acme Junior Pilot, uh, former uh, project manager at a power company, and uh, I don't know, train at it? Yeah, train at it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Cool. Why not? And there you have it, Stephen Ivey. So, uh, let's, we're going to tell, tell you about what's going on with uh, Stephen Ivey and I, um, and myself, uh, during the Getting to Know Us segment, but 
first, we're going to jump right on in to the news. Stand by for news. All right, let's start with uh, a reminder for everyone that on the 14th of July, which is what day is that? Tuesday, I think? That is going to be next Tuesday. Okay, next Tuesday at uh, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, is scheduled to hold a board meeting regarding the uh, probable or the, yeah, to determine the probable cause of the February 23rd, 2019 Atlas Air Flight 3591 crash into Trinity Bay, Texas. So just wanted to remind everybody about that. If you're home or in a place where you can watch or listen to the live stream, there you go. Information about it will be in the show notes. That was a nice and easy one, wasn't it? That was. All right. Good way to start. Good way to start. Flawless. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The second item in our news notebook is uh, from... Airline, air, yeah, airlinegeeks.com. Russia's Aeroflot secretly carries passenger abroad under guise of cargo. Russian Airlines, commonly known as Aeroflot, has been secretly operating exclusive luxury flights abroad for approximately a month, despite Russian government's international travel ban, the business daily Vedomosti, which was previously a joint venture between Dow Jones and the Financial Times, reported. As Russians' coronavirus cases continue to rise at one of the fastest rates in the world, the Russian state banned international flights for all airlines at the end of March in a bid to battle the COVID-19 pandemic. The country allows only government-authorized repatriation flights to bring back Russian citizens who were stuck abroad due to lockdowns. Russia's flag carrier also stopped selling tickets for international flights until August 1st, when the airline thinks the state will lift bans on some international destinations. To operate these repatriation flights, airline companies have to get permission from the Russian Federal Air Transport Agency and the aviation authorities of the countries where such flights are planned to be operated. However, Aeroflot is somehow continuing to carry passengers abroad, as reported by Vedomosti, uh, citing employees of three Russian-based airlines. According to the employees of these three airlines, including Aeroflot itself, the company has been bypassing the band by operating passenger flights as cargo. I guess passengers are kind of sort of cargo, live cargo. Self-loading cargo. Self-loading, Self-loading. cargo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Aeroflot has been operating flights to New York, Paris, London, Frankfurt, Seoul, and Tel Aviv since at least early June. Uh, these flights are officially uh, registered as cargo, but tickets are sold with permission from Russian Federal Air Transport Agency. Uh, the uh, uh, Vedomosti Mosti uh, cited two Aeroflot representatives. It's noted that these exclusive flights are not publicized. Passengers learn about ticket sales through the grapevine. Due to the closed European borders, only EU citizens or Russians who have citizenship or a residence permit in one of the European countries are allowed to buy tickets for these flights. According to flight tracking data, Aeroflot has operated flights to Frankfurt, Paris, London, Rome, Barcelona, Nice, New York, Seoul, and Tel Aviv since the beginning of June. I think, didn't I just read that in a previous paragraph? I believe you did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I love the journalists, how they repeat these things. They just change a couple of words, rearrange them We're a little bit. We're going to need 450 words from you. Um, yeah. 
Oh, oh, I need to tell you, though, I I forgot to tell you, Steph, Um, according to flight tracking data, Aeroflot has operated flights to Frankfurt, Paris, London, Rome, Barcelona, Nice, New York, Seoul, and Tel Aviv since the beginning of June. I'm so glad you mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah, it's an important thing. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, how I'm wondering, since this is now um, being reported, if they're still doing it. I just wonder about the like the logistics of it. Like you show up with a cargo flight, and you're like, oh, by the way, we just have these couple extra people. Can you just process them through immigration and customs for us? Well, I, I know, like, um, like if I want to go ride on FedEx or UPS internationally, they just put me on the documentation, and then I've got to just pay the fees and everything. But I, I think that's kind of different set of circumstances. You're not actually, you know, I'm, I, I'm technically a crew member, not you know self-loading cargo we've always considered you steven as a crew member oh well thank you jay sure uh, but you know i, I, I was kind of curious because i thought Air, airloft was uh owned by the russian government it's 51 percent owned so they're kind of breaking the law they're breaking their own law yeah they're breaking their own law to make money and for the government the, the part that was confusing tickets sold with permission from russian federal air transport a- agency which yeah, also so seems it's like, like a government so technically doesn't yeah isn't it a non-story then because they have permission well, I guess maybe everybody else is We a made the upset. rule, and then we broke our own rule. So. But they're the only ones that get to break the rule, though. I, I think that's what people are upset yeah, about. Yeah, that, right? that, that, that's probably it. Because there are a yeah. couple other Russian airlines that aren't allowed to be doing that. And then, you know, if, if it's cargo, they're making you ride in the cargo hold, or do you get to actually ride in the cabin? I'm thinking that they're probably just regular airliners. Yeah, probably. Right? With seats? Oh, weren't you showing me a picture? It was a 380 or something that had the seats taken out. It was set for a couple where they're putting cargo in. Yeah, that was that... Um, what was the the one big giant A three eighty I fly you fly yeah. we fly high fly high fly high fly, fly. <laughs> yeah maybe they're doing that they're taking half the seats out and putting cargo in there and they're putting people in there too have a combo well uh, Stephanie you're a Russian agent uh, what do you uh, know about that um oh I'm sorry I'm so, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot say I cannot tell you about <laughs> well how about Boris let's go to Boris uh, what do you think sir. I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we so probably shouldn't. Any Russians listening we to the shouldn't. show, we apologize deeply. <laughs> we, I knew we shouldn't cover this uh, news item. <laughs> Liz, yeah, next time, anything to do with the Russian thing, don't let's don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> she just asked me if she's fired. <laughs> no, we're going to, that's just one strike. Okay. You have two more to go. That's it. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, I think we should probably move on before, you know. The KGB mm-hmm. in the door. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Can't be too careful. Before there's some, uh, you know, mysterious disappearances. <laughs> yes. Okay, and so we're going to go to item C. Final report on the Snowbird crash in Georgia. Investigators of the Canadian Department of National Defense determined that the crash of the CT-114 Tudor belonging to the Snowbird uh, aerobatic team was caused by an engine malfunction. Moreover, the pilot's ejection was obstructed by the parachute lines, resulting in minor injuries. The Royal Canadian Air Forces released the official crash report on June 29th regarding the crash that uh, occurred in Georgia, United States, on October 13th, 2019. After carrying out inverted flight for a routine check, the pilot rolled level, applied full thrust to rejoin the rest of the Snowbird formation. But the aircraft suffered a loss of engine thrust. Due to the uh, altitude being too low to attempt a safe recovery, the pilot chose to eject. However, 
An anomaly in the ejection sequence resulted in minor injuries. The aircraft crashed in a field and was destroyed, causing no other damage. The investigators found that the most probable cause of the crash was a fuel delivery system failure in the jet's engine, though they could not determine exactly what caused the malfunction signs of previous damage from a possible fuel leak were found. Additionally, it was determined that one or more parachute pack retaining cones had been released prior to the activation of the Martin Baker MK-10B ejection seat, resulting in its entanglement with the suspension lines. Following the finding, the life support system of the whole fleet was reviewed. The investigators recommended an inspection of Snowbird CT-114 Tudor engines to identify potential fuel leaks or damages that could explain the incident. That's an interesting one, this, Jeff. Um, and I'm not casting dispersions here. I'm not uh, pointing the finger at the Snowbirds. But uh, I used to regularly, um, I think most military pilots have had to go up to do uh, um, loose article checks uh, in their aircraft um, to try and discover because if you drop something in the cockpit it's obviously uh, a potential for um, it to jam something significant uh, and um, it's quite common then if the engineers can't find it for them uh, you know pull the seat out pull the cockpit apart if they can't find it then they say right well Will you mind getting airborne and turning upside down and seeing if anything falls out? Um, now, with the art loose article still kicking around inside the cockpit, it, we used to climb just carefully straight ahead to a suitable altitude, uh, and then we would start performing inverted checks. We wouldn't do it close to the ground for the obvious reason that while it's there and hasn't been found, there's the potential that it could jam something and you don't want to be close to the ground if that happens. So I'm just wondering, I, I don't know what height they were when they did this, but they did it low enough that they were too low to attempt a safe recovery. So I'm just going, um, I wonder what height they were uh, because we would have probably gone to 10,000 to do this. It just says routine check. It doesn't say what they were checking for, does it? No. Uh, I mean, okay. the, the maneuver uh, that they were doing was it part of practice, or was it part of you know? Yeah, made inverted a... flight for a routine check. Well, I okay I then. All right, I, I I jumped to the conclusion that it was uh, a loose article check. Uh, it could well have been something else that they wanted to check. For example, engine performance. I don't know, but uh, mm -hmm. why else would you do an inverted flight check? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, your points points very well taken there, but I'm not sure. So I may be reading too much into this. Yeah, and I, I don't uh, think he was that high, Nick. Um, because if, if I recall, he was within, I think maybe five miles of the where they were doing the air show out at the racetrack in Atlanta. So I mean, that's I don't know what the glide ratio is, but you're not going to get very far, you know. Yeah, he's saying that. Yeah, when they were doing those inverted checks for. Yeah, they, they were that they, a lot they higher. Were required yeah. to be higher. But, yeah, yeah. I don't mm -hmm. think yeah. in this case uh, you, we may be reading in too much to that, uh, Nick. It, yeah. it was probably some other inverted check that they do before yeah. they do the yeah. do the show. Okay, I guess. so uh, just to try drag us back up uh, towards fifty percent, though, uh, the uh, MK10 is actually a Mark 10. MK is short. Oh, for I'm Mark. sorry. That's all right. So it's a Mark 10B. 
I wish you actually quite a good seat. Too sure what the hell went on with that, but uh, they've no, had a couple good. of problems now with that seat in that aircraft. Whether it's a combination of mating the seat to the aircraft or not, I don't know. Perhaps a maintenance issue, but I'm a bit concerned because the Mark Ten is a very, very um, safe seat that is fitted to an awful lot of aircraft. So, don't know about that. Yeah, a sequence deployment sequence issue for some reason on this one. Yeah, and they're talking about these cones fitted to the parachute, and I don't know anything about that. I've never. I'm, that. I'm imagining that so the way that the parachute is uh, fitted to the seat, what happened was the seat, uh, the the cone is retaining the parachute pack on the seat, so it's supposed to deploy after the seat is away from the canopy. But if it went early, I don't know if that caused twisting or other just well, out of they, sequence deployment. The parachute is attached to the pilot. Uh, the well, yeah, that's what I mean. Sorry, sorry, I mean, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I meant not to so, seat to the pilot. So, yeah. but if that came uh, loose first before the seat was up and out of the way, then it could cause them uh, to. You, usually, the the parachute uh, and system uh, and the seat they just they just drop away because the straps are cut and the seat's very heavy and you've got a right. Drag so something in that sequence was out of order, so it didn't uh, happen in the I've right. I've never order heard of order. these cones before, so hmm. uh, doesn't mean they don't. Uh, perhaps they, they could they give them a different name. Yeah, I, I don't know what what it's referencing to be honest, but no. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway, very good. Anything else before we move on to the next item? No. All right. Mm -mm. Here we go. Item D. Spirit. Hey, how about some good news for a change? Uh, Spirit sends a private, not really a private, but a, an A319 jet to rescue families stranded in Turks and Caicos after a medical emergency. And this is from paddleyourowncanoe.com. Do you paddle your own canoe? I, when I have one. <laughs> Actually, I don't own my own cat. Uh, uh, slightly, canoe. slightly ironic. They didn't have to paddle their own canoe back from Turks and Caicos. Oh right? wow, that deserves a rim shot. If I can find it right here. Sorry, it's terrible. <laughs> I'm glad that somebody else is making stupid jokes like that and not me. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is uh, from, as I said, paddleyourowncanoe.com, uh, from Matus Masinski. Yeah, what he said. Masinski. I like to call him M.M. He's a serving international flight attendant with experience. American, low-cost Airline Spirit is most known for its rock-bottom, self-proclaimed bear fares and stripped-back offering rather than industry-leading customer service. <laughs> Ouch. But the Florida-based air airline really went above and beyond when it rescued a stranded family from the Turks and Caicos Islands over the weekend. They even got their very own private Airbus A319 jet to fly them safely home to Puerto Rico. The family of three were recently flying with Spirit from Puerto Rico to Philadelphia when their four-year-old daughter started having a seizure. Flight attendants immediately started or offered first aid, putting the young child on oxygen before a decision was taken to uh, a decision was made to divert the plane to the Turks and Caicos Islands for further medical treatment. Providenciales, Cialis? is that how you would say? Okay. Uh, once on the ground, the child and the family were rushed to the hospital, but uh, the Spirit Airlines flight had to depart without them to complete the journey to Philadelphia. At this point, the family realized they were stuck on the Turks and Caicos. They didn't have passports, 
And because of the COVID-19 pandemic, regularly scheduled flights between the Turks and Caicos and the United States had been suspended. Thankfully, Spirit decided not to abandon the family like it could have done and instead got permission to charter one of its planes to rescue the family and fly them back home to Puerto Rico. And with the scheduled flight suspended, of course, they were the only passengers on the 145-seat aircraft. So, yeah, that was a nice a nice thing that they did. To Absolutely. Help you don't yeah. usually hear Spirit doing nice things. It's usually the exact opposite. Right. It's almost it's kind of almost easy to get a little skeptical. Um you know, as to why they actually did this, but maybe it was just out of goodwill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sounds I, like it. Yeah. yeah. All right. There you have it. A nice short news segment, which brings us into the part of the show where we kind of get all caught up with each other. And let's see, let's start with you, Dr. Steph. With me. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. What have I been up to? Okay. So I did a lot of flying last weekend. Um. That was good. Um. I think we did f- between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday like forty loads of skydivers. Wow. wow. Um. Still just sitting right seat and soaking up as much information and learning as much as I can. So lots and lots of fun. Um. Definitely. And that really wasn't even that busy because of the holiday weekend. Um. Yeah. <laughs> So was was that in the in the twatter? That was in the mostly in the twatter, yes. Yay, the twatter. Loads in the in the Kodiak. I noticed that the uh control columns are glued together. They are glued together. That's that's amazing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. having one huge great big yoke. Yeah, well kind of. I mean, doesn't really feel that way when you're flying it, fortunately. <laughs> so and, and do and they have the throttles like up There's, above too? The throttles yeah, are on they're the up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, excuse the me, ceiling. thrust levers. It's uh, that is, <laughs> it's propeller driven, isn't it? Aren't they allowed no, to call on throttles? I don't know. Well, I mean, is there a butterfly it, valve? It, I don't think so. Carburetors, butterfly valve. No, no, I mean, according to it's Captain the, Al's um, requirements, mm-hmm. should be thrust lever, but it's yeah. actually labeled as the throttle. Well, then in this case, we're going to call them throttles. We'll blame Canada and yeah. Devlin. Always Canada. Well, we always blame Canada. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that was. I mean, oh. Talking of Canada to Haviland. There you go. Oh, yeah. He's got hey. a Haviland t-shirt on. That's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was that was a lot of fun. That was basically my entire weekend. Um, yeah, uh, very hot days. Um, but fortunately, up at 14,000 feet, it's a little bit cooler, uh, thankfully. So as long as you can just keep degrees, going, you don't have to spend a lot of... Exactly. As long as you don't have to spend a lot of time on the ground, not so bad. And um, fun story... Um, our friend of the uh, show on the um, Plane Talking UK host, Armando, he um, was also flying skydivers over the weekend and definitely heard him on with Charlotte Approach at least once. So I was like, hey, that's Armando. Hey, I know that guy. <laughs> I, know, I know that guy. Hey, I'm Marta. Armando. Armando. Right. Or one have, of those but... three. Well, he was. I, he was waiting for you two to have a mid air. Then we'll have something to talk about. Fortunately, oh, we're separated nice. by like 80 miles. So <laughs> it's not going to be not going to be an issue. Armando. Oh geez. Okay. Yeah, no, he was he was checking he was leaving the frequency, otherwise I probably would have said something. I, I'm pretty sure I the twatter can outrun the one eighty two if it needed to. <laughs> yeah, it, it can. <laughs> yeah, but he's sneaky. Yeah, he's a sneaky oh, kind of character, sneaky. so you never know what he's got up his sleeve. Yeah. And then uh 
yeah, Saturday was 4th of July and um, my town actually put on a fireworks show, which made it kind of interesting trying to get home afterwards. Um, I didn't really want to watch the fireworks in town, but um, I had to drive past the place where they were going to be setting them off and they were had it pretty limited to just, um, they, they did allow people in, but only to a certain point. So if you didn't get there early enough, they were turning everyone away unless you live here. So I had to stop like three times to show my driver's license to just be like, yeah, I'm just... Just going home. Trying to go home. Uh, so that took a little extra time and got here, uh, sat around the fire pit, and all my neighbors were setting off their own fireworks anyway. So that was that was nice. You know, some nice uh, professional-looking fireworks in my own backyard. Fortunately, I think everyone survived with all their fingers, toes, and eyeballs. So success. Great success. Yes. Yay. And what else? Oh, my gosh. So when you were driving probably... around, do you carry your uh, special piece of paper that shows that you're an essential worker slash podcaster? Yeah, that's exactly how I get I, I knew it. Yeah. Yep. That's the way to yeah, do it. Exactly. Exactly. I'm just trying to think if there was anything else. I think that was about it. Um Yeah, and then just right back into work and it's been it's been really busy at work still. So just playing catch up and um trying to keep my head above water. Well, I'm glad that you are. Um Same here. Captain Nick. Any uh, bowling yes, going on there in uh England? A bit of practice. Uh, yeah, I've got a match uh, on Saturday, so a singles match first round, so I need to get myself clued up for that. Um, more importantly, I did a photo shoot uh, a few days back, uh, and that is, was really nice. And I'm also eyeing up a new camera because uh, Canon are bringing out the new range of mirrorless cameras, and I'm thinking of trying one out, so... We've got Robert in the chat room wondering what he thinks of the R5 and the R6, uh, which uh, he would buy if he could. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, no, no, just a normal kind of a week, really. Not much going on. Uh, Jilly has decided to uh, isolate herself again because she has had a recurrence of some symptoms. But I, oh, no. we both actually think it's just uh, the recovery can be a little bit um hit and miss you know some some days you feel good some days not so good and i just think she's just having a little bit of a roller coaster there but we have uh received and sent off our test packs so we will find out the results from that in a day or two i'm pretty sure we're going to be clean are, so that's are, good. Are, are they the tests you got to stab your brain with or are they different ones no, no, you've got to make yourself sick by uh -huh. sticking, not swallowing a swab, and then you've got to poke it up your nose until you sneeze and cover the table with... That's the one he's yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah, I don't want, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm good. I, I did one. That's enough. Yep. Yeah. Down the throat and up the nose. Uh, so, no, it's not the most pleasant, uh, of it, particularly if you're doing it for yourself, because you think... Oh, well, 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 yeah, I don't want to do this. So oh, I'm yeah. just going to do it. Exactly yeah. right. And I'm not a expert in this but they, they it's all fairly simple um so we'll see about that well nick i uh, need to ask you that, something mm. uh do you get uh, the email newsletter from um bnh photo i do now but because i'm unlikely to get there in the near future i tend to just skim them and then delete because that's the when you said something about canon's new camera i thought oh i just received the newsletter from bnh and it starts off by saying just announced canon unleashes impressive r5 and r6 mirrorless cameras alongside four new rf lenses 
And I'm thinking exactly oh, right. That he so saw I'm this. Looking at, uh, <laughs> looking at the Arctic, I think it'll be better for the kind of photography I do. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to be able to afford the R5, but it uh, it's a very big uh, um, sensor on that. Uh, you know, f I think it's four million uh, pixels wow. on that one. Not probably not a cheap no, camera. So 40, 40, 40 something pick million pixels. No, right. it, it's about. Four thousand dollars, I think, just for the body. Thousand dollars, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Out of my, whereas out of my the Arctic, mm -hmm. half that size, uh, sensor size, we're still twenty million pixels, which is fine. Uh, yeah, Hamish says forty-five megapixels, so uh, that's very impressive. Um, and for what I do, a uh, dog photography, uh, you need speed rather than uh, um, you know these fast. Uh, it's not like I'm doing. Um, great big landscapes that sort of thing where you'd want lots and lots of fine detail gotcha just got the photo steph mm -hmm. it says throttle yep. it does say throttle on the uh twatter overhead panel all right oh it does doesn't it? so yes. we're about 50 percent. excellent okay so it's uh, got three sets of levers there which one do you move all well hopefully the right one at the right time but, uh, well, they all got different texture too, though. So I mean, you should yeah, be able to yeah. put your hand and feel it. That's what you know. she said. One is power, throttle, yeah. space lever, whatever you want to call it. Prop, fuel. Maybe you don't touch that one until you, you know. Yeah, I don't think you want to touch that, that one too much. Good. Yeah. No. Uh, what are the yellow ones? Fuel. Oh wow! A uh, mixture, you mean? Or do you actually mean fuel? Their fuel cup. It says no. Fuel. I mean, it's, yeah, it's fuel. Fuel lever. Mm -hmm. huh. Just that, don't pull it back. I, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't have stuck them in line with all the other ones because I think to myself, if you want to just put be your pretty, fuel, just be pretty cautious which one you're. Yeah, I want to put them back almost out of reach. So you know, you <laughs> you really have to work to get to those. <laughs> I don't know about you, Jeff. I think I ought to be a copy designer in my spare time. There you go. Maybe make a little money on the side, right? Write a letter to, to Haviland saying, "There you go. Yeah, I think your fuel cocks are in the wrong place." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'd be very receptive sure to your criticism. All right. And you said you are doing uh, some lawn bowling practicing, but no uh, tournaments yet. Uh, yeah, well, I've, I've through the first round of the handicap singles, and uh, I'm playing my first round of the open singles on Saturday. So, uh, yeah, it, it, things are progressing nicely and enjoying the new club, uh, and uh, seems to be doing okay there. So, it's all, and the weather is a bit hit and miss. So, you know, it's it's okay, but it's not brilliant sunshine and not very warm at the moment, which is a bit of a shame. Okay. Well, where Stephen and I are, it's very warm. It is. It's a dry heat, though. Dry it is a dry oh, heat. Oh. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So uh, I mentioned in the last couple of episodes. In fact, I should I should probably play that little uh, sound clip that I have, shouldn't I? Uh, you just can't get. This just doesn't get old. And of course, the most time honored tradition of all: the road trip. Road trip. Road trip. Indeed, road trip. Yes. What did we decide this morning that we were going to call this now? Because we've been struggling with this. Yeah, we, we uh, we're on day four. And um, I forgot. Uh, oh, what? I don't remember what we said. Oh, shoot. I've forgotten, too. Yeah. Anyway. Jeff and Stevens something. Oh, no. Trip. It was uh, Stevens' great location with Jeff in a sidecar. 
No, no, that was yesterday. <laughs> okay. That was not this morning. Okay. The, the latest version was something else. Okay. And we thought, that's it. Well, that's what we're going to call this from now on. But now we neither of us and, remember. And, and then we did something else. Yeah. yeah and then we moved on. Yeah. Um, so we are on day four of the uh, road trip. And I've been uh, putting out um, little daily recaps of what we have been doing, where we have been and where we're going and meeting up with people and eating and We've been eating very well. We uh, have. It's been very, well. very good uh, cuisine. And um, so we started a Monday morning and ended up in uh, Shawnee. Shawnee, Oklahoma, which is just outside to the east of Oklahoma City. That was a long day. That was a very long day. Uh, the next day, we made it to Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, ended up meeting uh, APG community member James Graves Brown at a, a really nice Mexican restaurant, a New Mexican restaurant. Yes, called El Pinto. El Pinto. And uh, had a nice meal there. It was fun. And then uh, yesterday, we drove from Albuquerque up here to Durango, which is where we are presently, and um, had a, uh, we looked at some train museum the reason why we're here is well steven's going to tell you why yeah. are we here Stephen? yeah yeah we're, we're here because uh, i i've been wanting to ride on the uh, durango silverton uh, narrow gorge uh, railway that's uh, one of the uh last narrow gauge narrow gauge yeah um one of the last few historical railroads that actually still use coal to fire the steam engines unfortunately though the one we were on today was oil powered but you still get the fumes and the smoke effect um when you're going down the line but um yeah it was it was great um we did a tour yesterday of their yard and everything where they actually take um, the engines apart to do maintenance. They had one torn down to the boiler section and everything. It was kind of cool to see. Um, and then today we went, um, they don't have the full route, full routes. I think um, it's three and a half hours one way um, up their line, but uh, because of COVID and just low demand, they're only doing like a, I think it's two, two hour round trip through 215. I think yeah, two, round trip at uh, 215. There is actually probably the, most scenic section i mean you 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 you're pull out of the little yard they've got and you make a left-hand turn and then it's like a drop off into the gorge down there where the river's at and everything you're just along a sheer granite wall and yeah. on the left of you i mean you just stick your arm out you can actually touch the granite literally you can really literally touch, touch the, the granite. granite and if you look off the other side if you are afraid of heights don't look off don't that look side. out that yeah, side because that it's side. like a sheer drop all the way down i don't know how many hundreds of feet yeah it, to the river yeah uh, i know one section he said there it's at least 400 feet straight down yeah it's yeah it made me feel a little dizzy actually yeah. when i looked over the over the side anyway um yeah incredibly gorgeous scenery by the way the uh, it is the train uh, you could have gone on a diesel train or a, a steam powered train and we the steam locomotive yep. and that's what we did today i think yep. they said they have eight steam locomotives yep. and seven of them are coal yep. fired They're coal fired but the one we were on today was one that they had just in the past year have converted to fuel oil yeah uh, but it wasn't so it's not really technically powered by the fuel oil the fuel oil heats up the water, water in the and, boiler and yep. it's a steam engine so yep. that old-fashioned steam engine sound uh, with the whistle and everything else is just awesome yeah it's it's, it's a great uh sound to hear and then you know also this is a, the original locomotive from like the uh late i think the hours was from 1903 when it was originally yeah, 1902 i think was, yeah and then they converted it uh to uh, it was originally a, a standard gauge and then they converted yep, it to a narrow, narrow gauge in 1928, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, it's uh, 
it's really a thrill to hear the the old steam engine sound and hear the whistle. Now, ironically, every time I try to do a video, <laughs> I was hoping that you could hear the the steam whistle in the background. And every single time I, I turned off the video, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're yep, blowing the steam horn. Yep. I'm like, Gosh darn it! But I, I, I did thought it. you'd be pretty used to that, Jeff. Didn't you have one on the mat, Doug? Uh, we do, but this one sounds a little bit different. Uh, the train oh, versus okay. the airplane model is a little bit different sounding. Plus, you got the echo effect from the you yeah. know, rocks and everything. Yes, yeah. that, that's true. Right. By the way, Nick, that was really funny. Good. <laughs> Since I managed to butt in there, can I just uh, say a shout out to Chloe, uh, Barry's eight-year-old daughter, who is uh, listening live. So, hi there, Chloe. Hi, Chloe. Hi, Chloe. Hello. All right. So yeah, we did the so we did the museum and all that kind of stuff in the the train yard or whatever you call it uh, yesterday, and um, it had a pretty good meal last night. We eventually, did. yeah, we were, were going to eat here at this. They have a beer garden. We're right on that Animus River yep. uh, that we basically followed all the way up to Silverton on the train this morning. Um, right outside the hotel here, and uh, it was uh, in direct sun. Direct and it was there. not cool, and the food selection was not yeah, great. Food selection was not great. The uh, the prices were a little pricey, yep. and uh, but just you know there wasn't really a lot of good selection there. So we decided let's go in town and eat at the Steam Steamworks, yeah, Steamworks, Steamworks brewery, uh, brewery. And we got there, and they said, okay, it's a fifty minute wait. Yep, five but zero. We went ahead and waited anyway, and. They basically took all of that 50 minutes. Yeah, it was a long did. time. But it was worth it. Uh, the meal Absolutely. was uh, really, really good. Okay, the beer was good, too. And the oh. beer was good. Yeah. Yeah. What did you have? The I had uh, uh, the conductor. It's a uh, habanero uh, lager. No, it was kind of burning something. Oh, no, no, no. That's right. A conductor was the Imperial IPA. Um, controlled burn. Controlled burn. Yeah. And it had some it's kind of It's definitely a... controlled. What kind of a chili pepper? <laughs> habanero. Habanero. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, had a great meal last night, and then this morning we got up early and drove up to Rock Redwood. Redwood. Oh, is it Rockwood? Rockwood. Rockwood. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Red Rockwood, Redwood. and that's where we got on the train and did the thing. Came back here, and here we are. Here we are. Yep. Yeah. So that's uh, day four, and uh, we again make sure you follow us on social the social meds because um, I'm making these crew logs uh, available uh, for everyone, uh, whether you're a patron or not, uh, just to kind of keep track of our progress on this trip. Now, tomorrow, we will be leaving early in the morning, yep. right? Heading yep. up to... Um, we're leaving tomorrow, going to be driving over to uh, Moab to go to Arches National Park. Um, probably going to spend the better part of the day trying to drive around there and then... Um, staying in moab and then i think from there the next the following day we're going to go try and do uh canyon lands and then drive on down to uh hurricane or uh, i believe i've been hurricane told, hurricane or hurricane hurricane hurricane, hurricane. like h-e-r-k-i-n yeah hurricane. and then uh I, we haven't really i haven't figured this part out yet because i was looking at the drive time go, going actually to the north rim because the forest fire had been cleared so you can actually go to the north rim now but if we go to the north rim and then drive to the south rim where we're staying it's about 12 hours worth of driving and we're I, i'm not i don't think we're going to do that yeah, yeah we're going to have to flip a coin and see which I mean, if we you go want through. to steven it's your car 
It's your journey. I'm just along for the ride. I, I don't think we'll make it, to be honest. Although I'll, I'll have a lot of editing to do. So oh, we'll see. Yeah, maybe it'll work, work out, out then. Yeah, maybe right. it'll work out. And not then. Wait, are you saying I'm driving the whole 12 hours? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Oh, all right. Well, unless you want me to be editing while I'm driving. <laughs> no, probably not a good idea. Probably not. It's no. your car. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, so then we're going to go hit both, try the tip, tip both from Grand Canyon. And then the following day, go out towards Death Valley. And then um, from there, uh, go through the actual valley, um, go to the Star Wars Canyon, which is where the fighter jets kind of maneuver through there. Hopefully we'll see one. Probably won't, but it'll be worth going to go see. And then uh, on our way down to uh, Long Beach, where we're going to stay, uh, basically end the trip, because um, I've uh, I've got stuff I actually have to do. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Lots of stuff you got to do. Yeah, lots of stuff. Yeah. That list keeps growing, too. And I think I mentioned last week uh, on last episode that on Wednesday night, I'm boarding the Sunset Limited, uh, the Amtrak uh, train from Los Angeles to New Orleans. And I'm going to do more train stuff. This is becoming a very trainy kind of <laughs> trip. So be a train aficionado. A train aficionado. Yes. Okay. So I'm not one yet. Stephen is, but I'm not yet. Yep. So um looking forward to that and i'll continue to pump out crew logs to kind of keep everybody along with me on my journey make sure you haven't been abducted yes yeah all right um what else I, there was something i just remembered and i thought i should mention that i should write these things down yeah it would help yeah yeah hmm. yeah i'll probably think of it at some point yeah, oh well. so anything else that we should uh talk about crew before we move on? I don't think so. No. I've had a haircut. Oh, oh yeah. uh, Liz uh, just uh, told me that somebody was asking about whether or not we're going to have a meetup in Southern California. And we're kind of going back and forth on that one. We're not sure because California has gone kind of much more restrictive again uh, yeah. for the, uh, the Rona. And I'm not sure that it would be a great idea. Yeah, we don't necessarily want to draw um, attention to ourselves because, um, I mean, if it's, what, what, if you put something out that you don't really know is going to show up and then before, before we were talking about having it, it's kind of in an area where there's a lot of traffic and if someone gets upset, we don't really want to have the police called and show up and all that. So just We were thinking about doing it at the same place that... Um... Cranky, yeah. Cranky Geeks does the, uh, the In-N-Out Burger. Yeah. Cranky Flyer, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, Cranky Geeks. That's something else. Um, <laughs> there is actually something called Cranky Geeks, but that has nothing to do Cranky. with aviation. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cranky Flyer. Uh, In-N-Out Burger on uh, the final for oh, LAX. Yeah, on the north for side of LAX. left and right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, But then uh, we learned that, um, well, In-N-Out Burger's not even available for dine-in. Yeah, so you have to go through the drive-thru, so that you have to have a car. And, yeah. And then, yeah. and then if anyone knows, In-N-Out's out to the roadway anyway, so you're going to wait an hour for your burger probably anyway. So. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and then I think that they're disallowing any groups of more than 10. 10. Yeah. To hang out and, right there on the property. Well, yeah, I, think, I think that's just the state. It's the state. Oh, or okay. CDC, yeah. whatever. I don't know. So, well, you know. Keep uh, your eye on the social meds. If we decide to do something like a public kind of a meetup, we'll let you know. But right now, you can probably tell that we're kind of thinking maybe not. That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not yet time. Anyway. Um, yeah. As uh, Tim Van Ram just said, Southern California is a hot spot for COVID. 
right now. Meetup not advised. All right. So now it's official. Tim Van Ram just uh, just prognosticated, um, or no, that's not the right word. He just basically told us, don't, don't do, do it. it. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Advised. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. All right. Well, with that, then, I think it's time now for us to move on to the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Why not buy us a cup of coffee and become part of the Coffee Fund cadre and support our podcast financially like so many awesome people do already? And a couple different ways to do that. We have the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last episode, we have David Jackson, Randy Ackerman, William Driver, Rich from Sheffield, and Casey Christ, or Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T. I would say Christ. So thank you, Casey and Rich and William and Randolph and David for using the uh, APG Coffee Fund Classic method. The other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. That's patreon.com slash airline pilot guy. And we have a new producer, Lucas. So thank you. Welcome to the uh, patrons at Patreon, Lucas. So, hey, if you want to also join this great group of folks supporting us financially, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, where you'll learn how you can sign up for all this. And we think you'll be glad you did. And we will be, too. Captain, incoming message. All right, before we, I know we just played the feedback bumper, but before we go to the first uh, piece of feedback that we have, I neglected to mention or ask Stephen, because we talked about it at the very beginning of the show, and then we went just, right past we're, it. We were trekking along, just yeah. moving right along. Uh, so, Stephen, uh, the uh, uh, my cohort in the uh, from Atlanta to the West Coast trip here, um, he is a big part of our community. He's been listening to the show for many years, and uh, I've known him for quite some time, and I think all the crew has. Uh, and you've been at some of the big big meetups we've had, and also some of the minor meetups. So, and you've actually been on some other uh, podcasts as well. Yeah, I've, I've been on the uh, PTK a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've actually visited them in person too. So, yeah, that's one thing I haven't done yet. So, got me beat on that in that respect. But anyway, tell tell everybody about you. Yeah, so um, I, I fly for Acme Junior. I'm a CRJ first officer. Um, currently based up in Chicago. Um, and then uh, my background, I used to do project management for the power company. And that's how I paid for my pilot training. Um, and then I eventually just got tired of it one day because of some changes. And I basically just found a fine gig, did aerial survey uh, to get my time in. And then I started my airline about uh, be two years uh, in next month, actually. Wow. Yeah. So, um, but uh 
Before all this happened, I was based in Atlanta. And obviously, with all this going on, they closed our base and um, just have had a large reduction of flying like everybody else. You know, it's just sign of the times. Um, however, uh, I was actually supposed to upgrade to the left seat back in April, um, but that got canceled because they didn't need anybody anymore. Uh, well, they, they need people, but they didn't need them at that time. So, um, but I uh, elected to go ahead and start looking for work just to head this off because I, that's just kind of person I am. I don't like to really deal with unemployment and then searching for work because I, I don't like job interviews to begin with. So, when there's extra pressure because you need a job, it doesn't help. Um, so I applied to a couple of places and I heard back from somebody. Um, they're just going to call them Acme. Um, so they offered me a job, kind of doing what I was doing for the power company, just for them instead. Um, unfortunately, that job is located in Southern California. So I'm having to uh, relocate across the country. That's why we're doing this road trip. Um, so... Uh, just in the process of getting out there and everything. And uh, hopefully I'll get uh, rebased out to the West Coast. So I don't have to commute to Chicago for work. Um, I'm still going to fly. Um, I'm not going to fly nowhere near as much as I am now. Um, probably once or twice a month, if that, um, just to keep current and keep my benefits up and all that. But uh, Very smart. Yeah. But uh, I'm, pro I'm probably going to be doing this for the foreseeable future. I, and I, I mean, just me personally, I don't think um, we're going to see a huge amount of hiring got you know the majors in the next couple of years just be at least two or three years before anything picks back up so um, i might as well go try and make a little extra cash pay off all my student loans and all that and kind of work towards uh just that just getting financially stable and still and student loans flight. you actually went to college yeah i did yeah oh i'd never have known it yep computer science degree i don't use it just kidding <laughs> that was a joke oh well <laughs> computer yeah. science wow yeah yeah no worries even the, the rest of us can tell it's all right oh thank you thank you i can too i was just you know I, it was it was a joke but nobody laughed yeah here wait <laughs> there you go oh okay somebody did finally all right um well good anything else no i think that's it that that if uh if you want to know more go dig around for those pt pt uk episodes and then or when i provide some feedback for airline pilot guy there you go. Most excellent. And the most important thing about Stephen that he really didn't mention is that he really appreciates good craft beer. Oh, yeah, I do. That is a fact. Yeah, that is a this fact. This is true. I, 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 in Atlanta, I would bid my overnights based on what craft breweries were available for the cities we're at. Yeah, one of the, one of the oh, most man. fun – go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, one of the most fun little area meetups that we had in Atlanta was that when we went to Scofflaw. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was their first year anniversary. That was the first year anniversary. Yeah, so right. I had a lot of special. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Beers. Yes? Nope. I thought you were going to add one nope. more thing. Nope. nope. Uh, uh, I was going to add a thing saying that uh, Stephen uh, managed to uh, hook up with me a few times on my Atlanta trips, and we always, uh, well, I always got taken to the most fabulous uh, drinking establishments. I always oh, yeah. look forward to having a few beers with Stephen in, uh, in ATL. It was great. Basically, he's a drunk, yeah, as you're, you're probably gathering. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. The last he's time not. I saw Stephen, we were in Asheville at a brewery. That is true. And that oh, wasn't yeah. very long ago. That was like Wait a couple a weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, well. We're just joking, of course. I mean, everybody's we're not, not joking. Us, yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah, With I don't that, think it says anything about the rest of us. Either. Like, yeah, we're like, all in this together. We were Stephen. all teetotalers here. <laughs> right. We have any more beer? 
yeah. What, 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 what is the we... stuff in the bottom of my glass? I think that's the peanut butter and jelly they used to make the beer. Oh, yeah, that's that's what we're having. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah, a it uh, like... North Carolina brewery, Catawba, mm-hmm. out of uh, kind of near Asheville. I'm, I'm kind of afraid to drink that. To be honest, it looks like something that if I had a little bit of yeah, vomit. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it kind of looks like there. little chunks <laughs> that you'd have, like if you like you had a little yeah. some something come up. Yeah. Okay, I'm not gonna have any more. Yeah. Yeah. No. I'll. I'll, I'll You're welcome. <laughs> I'll, I'll take care of this, and then you you, you do feedback. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Listen. Thanks for sharing that, Jeff. You're welcome. Okay. With that, Jim, let's uh, move on to. Our feedback. And the first item that we have in our feedback notebook is from Gus. He says, um, got a, well, he sent us a a link uh, to twitter.com and it's uh, actually a little um, audio link. And it's a U.S. Air Force plane. Uh, It's an E4B, I think, squawking 1776 on the 4th of July here in the U.S. of A. So let's listen to that. The Merca 01, level 250, squawk 1776. Merca 1, Kansas City, right? Merca 1 is his call sign. <laughs> M-U-R-C-A. Merca. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I thought that was kind of cute. I didn't hear the controller putting two and two together there. Uh, I think he's probably thinking, this is stupid, so I'm not even going <laughs> to gonna comment on it. Thank you, Stephen. This is a Lion Cake Double Dry Hopped. Oh, it's a triple. I'm sorry. I thought it was a double. It's a triple IPA. from. Oh, it's a triple brewery. IPA. Ooh, double hopped. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Yeah. What's the alcohol content? What's the percentage on that? On that? <clears throat> 10%. 10%? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> This is going to be a fun show. Maybe I should drink this. Quickly. Quickly. I've got three more of these. Don't worry. Mm. (laughs) All right. I'm just going (laughs) to. Liz Liz is encouraging us to drink it. Do it. Thanks, Liz. All right. Uh, So thanks, Gus, for uh, sending us a link to that uh, that Twitter uh, post. Um, Moving on. Greg, item two. Um, Is this our uh, big ass fan, Greg? Yes, it is. Greg Peterson. Um, he says, I thought this article was interesting because it was similar to the one you guys covered sometime back when a technician miscalculated the amount of biocide that needed to be added to the fuel. The other thing I thought was interesting was that it says Kathon FP 1.5 quote has since been withdrawn from aviation use following other engine thrust incidents, unquote. Yeah. Uh, people are kind of screwing things up with this biocide treatment uh japanese invest this is from flightglobal.com japanese investigators believe the biocide treatment of fuel on a jetstar airways boeing 787-8 led to the aircraft's losing thrust in both engines during a service to osaka's kansai airport two days later the aircraft victor hotel victor kilo juliet had departed Cairns on 29 March of last year as it descended through 16,100 feet or 4,900 meters towards Kansai. The uh, or Kansai. Kansai. The uh, crew started to receive instability indications from the right-hand General Electric GENX-1B engine. These were followed by a failure message for the left-hand engine a few minutes later at about 11,800 feet, and then 
a similar failure message for the right-hand engine. Both messages subsequently disappeared, but the aircraft systems recorded that the left engine had been operating below idle thrust for 8 seconds and the right engine for 81 seconds. Engine indications received by the 787 crew as the aircraft descended to... Oh, I'm sorry. That's the... Uh, <laughs> That's the caption for the little photo here they have. Normally what I do is I will make that um, a italic so I, I can tell what I'm supposed to read and what I'm not supposed to. Oh, well. As a result of the right engine's unstable performance, the crew disengaged the right-hand thr autothrottle and set the right-hand thrust lever to idle. The jet landed safely at Konsoi about 20 minutes later, and none of the 313 occupants were injured. Japan Transport Safety Board investigators found that an accumulation of magnesium salts, um, oh, like the Epsom salts. Yeah, like Epsom salts from last night. Yeah. Had impeded the movement of spools within the engines, destabilizing the fuel metering and leading to engine speed oscillations sufficient to dip temporarily below idle. Similar oscillations, not large enough to, detect, to be detected, had been occurring on the aircraft since it underwent biocide treatment at Auckland two days before the incident. The biocide was introduced by uplifting 25,000 kilograms of fuel to the center. Is that right? Kilograms? Yeah. Kilograms. Of fuel to the center tank plus 4,000 kilograms to the left wing tank, 3,500 kilograms to the right wing tank. Owing to differing quantities of residual fuel already present in each wing tank, the concentration of biocide for this additionally uplifted fuel had to be individually calculated in order to achieve the 100 parts per million required. The inquiry says a concentration of 250 parts per million, per million was needed for the left tank and 285 parts per million for the right. But it says there was no record of the actual calculation made or the dosage used during the treatment. Quote, it they is... they just eyeballed it? Uh, yeah, that, a, uh, that like should that. do it. Because <laughs> nothing bad ever happens when you eyeball it. No. No, 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 no. no. Totally fine. And, you know, nobody needs to record it. I mean, no, it's no big deal. All. Yeah. Um, let's see. The investigators also believe the added fuel with the higher biocide concentrations did not mix evenly. Oh, they didn't do this like banking, like really fast back and forth. Like and the shake and, and bake. And kind of, yeah, yeah, just shake and bake the yeah. whole thing. No, apparently they, they didn't do that. Um, so yeah, it didn't mix evenly with the residual fuel, uh, in the tanks and then probably pooled to a certain area and then fed the engine with the bunch of high biocide treatment, uh, concentration clogged the, like the lines or maybe the injectors or something clogged, obviously something clogged. That's for sure. Uh, let's see. All three fuel tanks were treated with Cathon FP 1.5, a biocide, which has since been withdrawn from aviation use following other engine thrust instruments. So, uh, incidents, I'm sorry. So, I would imagine we're probably going to see more of these that because uh, there are a lot of airplanes that have been put into short and long-term storage, and I would imagine that... Yeah, like let it just sit up and cake up in there and... Uh, well, or just maybe they need to do that. Um, I don't know. If the, is that a preventative thing? And, and then just being... Um, I don't exactly know. I'm assuming like biocide is... Um, yeah, some kind of cleaning agent for engines, correct? Yeah, it gets rid of the, um, the mold or... Was it fungus mold. or something fungus, that grows in yeah. the... Some sort of... Yeah, some something living growing in there that you need to... Uh, it's, uh, okay, so the official uh, word is from our, uh, our um, 
what do we call you? <laughs> producer. Producer. <laughs> I wanted to say controller. She's in the control room. Our producer director, she says, um, it officially uh, treats a fungus among us. Yeah, yeah. I, d- I just looked it up now. Not, uh, yeah, my, uh, kills uh, blah, blah, blah. micro microbacteria growth and fungi, including hydrocarbon utilizing microorganisms or HUM bugs that live in the water phase of a fuel tank. Hmm. You know, I'm suggesting in this case the treatment is possibly worse than the disease. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, you well, know. maybe, maybe not. I mean, if you if you get the treatment right, then that's important. But if you screw it up, yeah. I mean, you can say a lot of the same thing about what I do in the world of medicine. You know, doing things correctly is it's good. Incorrectly can cause harm. Well, it's just that we haven't heard of any incidents of uh, aircraft being uh, having double engine problems because of fungus in the tanks. So I'm just wondering if people are being just a little bit uh, overzealous and certainly not careful enough with the treatment. Uh, they don't realize perhaps how dangerous it can be. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they just need better procedures for doing this. Clearly yeah. they do. Yeah, cl- yeah, clearly they do. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. And by the way, Stephen. Yeah. We full-time regular co-hosts are so professional that we always do our research before the show and not while we're actually doing the show as you just did. So I just wanted to warn you that, uh, (laughs) but I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting some interference from the talkback channel. Might have to disconnect it. (laughs) Liz is saying, no, you don't. I was just curious because I've never heard of this stuff before and I, I just, I to I'm just kidding. Yeah. I just wanted to make fun of you because that's what I do. Yeah, I pick it up on that. <laughs> he's already he's learned a lot about that <laughs> in these last few days. It's been a long four days. days. It's been a couple days in close proximity. I can't tell you how many times yeah. I said something, <laughs> and and he thinks that I'm being serious. And I said, remember, Stephen, ninety percent at least of the stuff that I say is probably not being serious. So don't believe what I'm saying to you. Yeah, it's that 10% you want to watch out for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's just knowing the difference between when I'm joking and when I'm not. That's the hard part. Yeah. So uh, we're going to skip item three uh, because that one is going to be uh, more suited for Miami Rick when he joins us. Uh, So we'll skip to uh, item four um, from Ahmad. This Let's see. This is from, uh, he gives us a link to futurism.com. Interesting article. Uh, we talked about this uh, a couple days ago. On yeah, the, on the drive. On the, the drive. drive yeah, so this guy, uh, the, the headline is, uh, this scientist says he's built a jet engine that turns electricity directly into thrust. If this plasma propulsion tech is real, it could change everything. And this is written by Dan Robitsky. Uh, Again, futurism.com is the website um, where this was found. This past autumn, a professor at Wuhan Wuhan University named Zhao Tang was hard at work piercing together a thruster prototype that at first sounds too good to be true. The basic idea, he said in an interview, is that his device turns electricity directly into thrust, no fossil fuels required, by using microwaves to energize compressed air into a plasma state and shooting it out like a jet. Uh, he said, uh, without a hint of self-aggrandizement, that it could likely be scaled up enough to fly large commercial passenger planes. Eventually, he says, it might even power spaceships. Now, you'll notice 
that you it requires a, a microwave to energize the uh, plasma. And the problem is these microwaves are kind of bulky. Yeah. It's hard to fit a bunch of those microwaves on a uh, on an airplane. I would think so. Yeah. Well, okay. they could just use the ones in the galley, couldn't they? They could, but then I don't think I mean, you could, enough you thrust. could, you know, heat up the food at the same time as you produce. Win-win. <laughs> yeah. Y'all have microwaves yeah. in your Do planes? You yeah, I don't. I don't have microwave. I, I didn't have a microwave in my plane. I, I didn't have one either. Had a, just a red. You had one in yours, Nick. Just an oven. Oh man, I've got everything. Okay. <laughs> everything. Oh, okay. They did. Everything. They didn't. They had like latte machine, like uh, espresso machines, and oh. didn't you? Nick? Yeah. 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 We had espresso, and I, I remember. To be that. fair, the ovens weren't microwaves. I, I think uh, that's probably. Well, bit. at least you had an oven that. That, we that's had still uh, steam steam heat ovens, so uh, but they did a good job. Yeah, we had a lovely coffee makers on the aircraft. Yeah, I thought when was. he said steam heat, he was making fun of the airplane. Yeah, aircraft. I thought he was about two too. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm going to make fun of Mr. Tang or Professor Tang, but there you go. Well, well please do because yeah, please if do, you read we the were making jokes about we'll, it, we'll cost it to you. Well, it's just that this is this as you read a bit further in the article. This is. Uh, hardly a new uh, idea because it's been around for quite a while. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it, it, this is just a, a reimagination of the uh, the system of, of turning um, uh, plasma into a, uh, a jet propulsion. Uh, and um, they sort of done a little bit of uh, mathematics as to, uh, work out what kind of a battery load you'd need to be able to create the electrical energy to uh, learn, say something of the size of an A320 uh, fly around. Uh, and uh, the A320 can normally carry about 130 of the giant battery units you'd need, but actually to fly for an hour you'd need 570 of uh, these. And the battery units they're comparing are the Tesla Powerwall two units, uh, and, and you'd need 570 of those for a single hour of flight, and the aircraft can only carry 130, which means it's just a flying battery and not one that's terribly practical at that. So we're going to have to de develop a lot of awful, an awful lot of things before we can progress with the engine, because you're going to have to find a suitable electrical source, and that is a long way from. Uh, being capable, you know, being uh, uh, invented. Uh, although they're working on it, but uh, at the moment there's no real way to uh, to find uh, it. You, you need um, seven thousand eight hundred kilowatts of power um, because uh, you know the normal technology of a decent set of batteries produce about. Um, uh, let me see. I'm sorry. The uh, a normal jet engine uh, it produces. 220,000 newtons of thrust, meaning that a comparable size jet engine powered by Mr. Tang's jets would require 7,800 kilowatts. Now, you're sitting beside an, uh, a chap that worked in an electrical power plant. Um, could you quantify that for us, uh, Stevens? I, I, I mean, I, I think when we were talking about the other day, you know, he was getting into how he's going to have a lot of copper wiring and the and you know, to get it from, I guess, the batteries to the microwave, the batteries to the engine before you spit it out. And I was telling Jeff that, you know, you get to a certain point with electricity that you start vaporizing things. So for the plant I worked at, anything that's generally above 100 kV 
is going to start vaporizing flesh. So, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, that's a lot. I shouldn't worry. There's so many batteries needed that you're not going to have room for passengers. Yeah, so. exactly. And then not only that, I mean, carrying batteries around. And then you got to think <laughs> of the transfer. Oh, I'm sorry. The, you got to think of the transfer between one breaker to another. I mean, I'm, I know my plane, you can hear it click over and it's not, it's not quiet. It's a thud. And then, you know, when it doesn't, you know, you lose power. So, and when you're doing that, there's a risk of fire and arc. So if you're transferring that much power, do you really want your aircraft with the possibility of catching on fire because your breaker arced off? I, I don't think so. Yeah. It's, it's going to be like one of those old Frankenstein movies, isn't it? Where you see the guy with huge, great big circuit breakers or <laughs> great levers going ka-chung, yep. ka-chung, yep. ka-chung, and bringing everything online. <laughs> sparks everywhere and yeah yeah terrifying I, yeah i think they got a long way to go before they do that I, I i think if they if he wants some help with it, he probably just needs to watch star wars or i think it's the um the encyclopedia for star wars that actually spells out what you need to run a star destroyer so maybe he needs to look at that you know get get some ideas well maybe there. he did and that's where we'll he got some, his idea for this we'll drop some yeah. schematics and diagrams yeah yeah and, yeah yeah yeah. Um, so, so the writers of the article don't think that uh, Mr. Tang's ideas are actually going to scale up no, successfully, no. sadly. I mean, uh-uh. may- maybe for like a light sport or a uh, Cessna 150 yeah. where you want to stay in the pattern because <laughs> that's about as far right. as you're going to go. I go very far. <laughs> we do have some critical thinkers in our uh, chat room. Uh, I haul boxes. Uh, where does uh, where, where do you uh, get the or where do you draw the power for the microwave from? And then, of course, uh, Greg, a uh, big-ass fan guy, uh, says a very long extension cord. So, uh, I thought Greg would have thought, you know, I thought he would have said, well, you stick a couple of my fans on the front of your airplane, the wind blows them around and it generates electricity to feed the engines. So that yeah. would work, wouldn't it? I mean, that's I not a so. horrible idea. I mean, I mean, yeah, that's what rats are, so. Yeah, that's right. So I thought rats were like little critters that had like these long no the tails, the ram air turbine in the front oh, of your plane. That kind yeah, of rat. Yeah, gotcha. that kind of rat. Yeah. yeah. So basically, the uh, the the guy that came up with this brilliant idea. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I haul boxes. <laughs> Next article: Mr. Tang vaporized himself. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it, I just saw uh, Neil, Neil Lawrence mentioned Mr. Fusion. I think that was actually mentioned the it's, article it's in the article. Yeah, yeah it talks about Mr. Fusion uh, from Back to the Future and uh, something else too. What was? Uh, oh, I just saw it. Uh, I mean, according to Back to the Future, we should. Iron Man's suit was powered by an arc reactor, and the flying DeLorean was powered by Mr. Fusion. Yeah. Yeah. A couple little minor, M- minor both of which, obstacles. unfortunately, fictional. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, um, I don't know what else to say about that. Oh. Yeah, uh, assumptions are being made by Mr. Tang um, that um, battery technology is going to take huge leaps. I'm sure it will, you know, in the future, but yeah, not yeah. that, not that much. If it's anything like the battery that powers my Wi-Fi in the room, they got a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah, that's sad now. Sad. It's a sad situation. It is a sad, sad situation. You know, I have not played that in quite some time. Let's see if I can even find it. And now we have some dead air while I'm trying to find sad, sad situation. Do I even have it in here anymore? yeah. It looks like you, you took it out. Sad situation. Oh, no. That's a sad situation. That is a sad <laughs> That's situation. That's a very sad That situation. just shows you I haven't played it in a while because I just, I've just i taken it out. It just got, oh, well, 
I'll have to put it. <laughs> I have to put it back in sometime. That's what she said. All right, <laughs> let's move on. To, <laughs> I crack myself up sometimes. All right. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad someone finds it. Funny. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Item five. Moving on quickly here. Uh, Mike writes in. He says. Oh, this is Mike uh, Lawrence up in uh, Ontario, right? Toronto, Ontario, that area. Is that right, Liz? L London, Ontario. Thank you. Um, what? So he sends us this uh, link to, okay, well, it's, I guess his, uh, the title of the feedback is, is Historic Harvard Delivers 100th Birthday Cards. And then he gives us a link to a TV station video. And I don't think I ended up getting that. I don't think it's really worth playing. Uh, but anyway, if you want to, what? What was that? I, I don't know. Like Some a kind of a sound effect that I didn't push. It's like it sounds like somebody taking the bottle, the cap off of a bottle or something. I, you know, I should have done this in front of everybody. That would oh, you play that? Nice. <laughs> so, does Nick know that he's not muted? I think, I think so. he's well aware. He's actually. fully aware. <laughs> fully aware. Yeah. Well, thank you yeah. for that. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, yeah. This is Nick, a we're still doing show. the show. Uh, <laughs> talking about, you know, this, this is awful, But it's fun. Um, so, Mike Lawrence says what wasn't made clear in this um, video of this uh, historic Harvard delivering 100th birthday cards. Uh, is, uh, or even mentioned by City TV, was that a box of birthday cards for Lieutenant Hannah? Nick will know that it's pronounced, oh, I'm sorry, Lieutenant. <laughs> I even mispronounced it, even yep. though I knew that I was not supposed to do that. Um, <laughs> Lieutenant from Southwest Ontario was carried to Oshawa from our base in Tilsonburg. Oshawa. I should know, I should have known better. Thank you, Liz. Emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> it's so nice to have Liz in my ear correcting all my mistakes. So you can imagine it's pretty much a continuous conversation from her into my ear because I make very, very large and consistent and constant mistakes by our oh, MK2. So I'm guessing that's a Mark II. That's Mark II. Harvard, <laughs> which is itself I, a... I'm I like your version now. <laughs> <laughs> or I could MK say, uh, no, that's a Mickey. A Mickey too. <laughs> no, not two. This is MKII. Harvard, which is in itself a well-ear veteran. Now, is that right? A well-ear veteran? Well-worn veteran? Oh, I know what it is. Well, I think War it's II. I think a World War II veteran. Oh. Oh. Yeah, yeah. that was that one was not my fault. Mm, that's a tight, Spell yeah. check is that's not a, your friend. That's a dictation uh, error yeah, if I ever saw one. Probably so. Right. I read lots of my own dictation errors every day. Let me read that sentence over. <clears throat> Maybe I shouldn't. Uh, what wasn't made clear or even mentioned by City TV was that a box of birthday cards for Lieutenant Hannah from Southwest Ontario was carried to Oshawa from our base in Tilsonburg by our Mark II Harvard, which is itself a World War II veteran. That's APG scoop on the Canadian news media. Haha, ha, Mike. Okay. So uh, we should mention, yeah, if you want to listen to this, uh, well, let's see the story. Let's go to the story. A little scroll down. 100 cards for a 100th birthday celebration. This is from Oshawa Express.ca. Uh, 
uh, Oshawa resident Harvard Armour Hannah. Armour, 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 A-R-M-O-U-R. Hannah will be turning 100 on Canada Day, July 1st. And longtime friend Jen Madigan is asking for 100th, 100th birthday cards to help make his day extra special. That's the caption for this very nice photo of Mr. Hannah in his wheelchair. A longtime Oshawa resident is celebrating a century and a close friend wants to help make it extra special. So if you want to read more about that, it was very cool. Uh, apparently they got a lot more than just 100 cards. Yeah. Um, what... Um, so again, all that information linked to that uh, TV video as well as the article will be in the show notes. But uh, we just wanted to mention that Mike, the reason why he's pointing out uh, stuff that have, has to do with the uh, the Harvard uh, World War II veteran, um, is that he is uh, one of the, oh, he's a vice president of the CHAA, CHA, the Canadian Harvard Aircraft Association. And there's information in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about that organization, harvards.com, where you can vote, uh, donate, and et cetera. Go ahead, Liz. Oh, yes, yes. The Harvard um, in Canada is what we U.S. people would call the Texan. That's correct. Same airplane. Anyway, so he's actually the vice president of uh, the uh, Canadian Harvard Aircraft Association. He's also the interim chair of the fundraising committee, and I'm a member of the service crew who assist with briefing our backseat passengers on the parachute operation if it should ever be needed, the safety policies and procedures we follow, and how to get into and out of the aircraft. We also perform basic tasks like checking the oil, cleaning and preparing the aircraft, walk-arounds, and doing the ground marshalling when it shows or events. Below, and there's a picture in here, which if you go to the show notes, you'll see Mike Lawrence, uh, there in his snappy-looking red shirt and orange cap and orange gloves, um, marshalling a couple of these Harvards uh, before they're about to head out for a formation flight. So thank you, Mike, for uh, sending in the information. A a nice feel-good story for Mr. Hanna and his 100th birthday. And please check it out, ITSN, in the show notes. Anything to be said otherwise before we move on? No, I, I just think if we, you might want to, if everything, all the COVID goes away, you might want to go try and visit and get a Harvard ride. It sounds like you might be able to hook you oh, up. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. you might be able to. That's nice. Yeah, that would be fun. get Liz in there, too. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just make sure that she doesn't wear a parachute. Okay. Uh, item <laughs> well, number because s- she knows how to, how to operate the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, shoot. She heard that. Oh, <laughs> she's <whoops>. listening. Dang. <laughs> okay. Item number six. Stan uh, says a few words about episode 431. Uh Uh-oh. It's more than a few. Few's three years. Yeah, Yeah, it's many, I'd say. Many. Yes. First of all, I've attached a two-second video clip with a few words about the pilot who violated Vegas class Bravo. Bravo, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I'm not going to even, it's going to be too much effort for me to actually play this video because it literally is only two seconds long. And the person in the video is basically going, no. No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) It is funny, though. You should watch it by going to the show notes. Uh, So anyway, the the class Bravo violator. um, uh, 
Well, oh, he actually, he says, I hear he actually flies out of Zamperini, where I'm based. I think we mentioned that on the last episode. Maybe Stan's this guy, he's just not telling us. No, Stan, were you flying, was it a cardinal? One November Robio. It was a centurion. Centurion. Were you flying a centurion a few weeks ago in Las Vegas area? Just wondering. Yeah. Stephen is anyway. Yeah. Just wondering. Just in addition to thanking the whole crew for an excellent show, I also wanted to say I really enjoyed this week's Plain Tales, even though I suspected the issue linking the three case studies. It was an excellent story. No, it was excellent storytelling. And I really liked the background music. Yeah. Nick does a great job with producing these things and I picking out great music. music. Yeah. Since my last feedback, I have passed my instrument and commercial check rides. Yay. Hey. And I'm now Great starting job. a proper job. I'm now starting on multi-engine and CFI training. Thanks again for all the time you put into the show. Stanley Stanimal. <laughs> That's his nickname, I guess. We're not going to let you. Yeah, you're will forever always be Stanimal now. Yeah, don't even mention, don't even say Stan when you send in feedback anymore. No, Just no. say Stanimal. Stan He's a Stanimal. Anyway. Um, and not to steal the, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, Congratulations on your uh, instrument and commercial check rights. That's good stuff. That is good stuff. Well, we know it's not him now, though, because he just passed all that. If it was him, he wouldn't have passed all that. Cause yeah, he would, he would have just have, uh... he would have just told the DPE no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> negative. 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 Unable. He didn't even say unable. Yeah, he didn't even negative use unable. and no. It was just no. Oh, you're talking about the the uh, class B. Yeah, the, the class B yeah, guy. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Just, no, I'm busy flying the plane. I thought you were talking about um, oh, no. Stanimal. Yeah. I can't copy down a number. I'm flying. I'm flying. I'm going to try that next one, next time because it happens very often when ATC says copy down this number. Unable. Unable. Why not? Negative. I'm flying. Negative. <laughs> hey, I'm while busy. we're uh, giving out congratulations for. Uh, Past check rides, uh, mm -hmm. John Carlo Peñas in the uh, sorry the Facebook chat room recently passed his private pilot check ride. So oh yay! Wanted to say congratulations for that. Congratulations! Will you guys stop passing things? My hands are getting sore. <laughs> <laughs> Quit being so darn successful out there. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> hey, we love it. We I, want, I wanted some feedback from someone who's just failed at one. Oh yeah, that'd be very depressing. We can play this instead. <laughs> Yeah, that's so <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes there's things to be learned from, from those types of stories because it does happen. Yeah. You know, yeah. if anyone's got a good, you know, lesson learned story that they want to share with the, you know. Yeah, Bob writes in and uh, he took his private pilot uh, check ride and uh, unfortunately he failed. Is that Bob Barker? Uh oh. <laughs> Maybe that's why I decided to make the fictional person Bob. I don't know. I'd be impressed if Bob Barker got a medical. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Me too, since he's been dead for a, a while. He didn't die. Oh, he's not? Did he? Oh, okay. Oh, boy. I thought he had. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe he's... Okay. Liz says, edit that out, Jeff. Yeah. Mark the uh, the the time right there, uh, Liz. And uh, Yeah, oh, he's so... 96 years old. 96? He's 96. Well, he should be dead. <laughs> well, I'll definitely have to cut that one out. <laughs> I'm just he's kidding. Somewhere, he's somewhere going, I'm not dead yet. I'm uh, not dead you yet. Soon. Bob Barker, I love you. I really do. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're not going to let you on that show ever. You know? Oh, I know. Yeah. Shoot. No. Perfect well, he... ban from Price is Right. Oh, no. 
So Stephen's reacting to what Liz just said. <laughs> so much for the coffee fund being being in his will. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> All right. Item seven. Darren, is it time for Plain Tales yet? <laughs> I don't know. So. Let's do this one because it. We're not even close. <laughs> even worse. <laughs> okay, let's keep going on. Uh, Darren says, hi, APG crew. I wrote in recently to tell my story about addiction recovery and how much I love, uh, loved Ian Palmer's story. Thank you for reading my message and the kind words you all said. On a separate note, I build model airplanes and listen to old APG episodes while I'm working on them. I was listening to an episode yesterday where I found out Captain Nick used to fly F-4 Phantoms. I literally just finished building a nice 132 scale F-4 yesterday, so I thought Nick might appreciate some pictures. Keep in mind, I did have to deviate from instructions here and here and there. Uh, plus, I added some artistic license, so it may not be 100% technically accurate, but I still think it looks pretty good. Now I think, yeah, Darren. I I did notice that the pilot's supposed to be in the front seat, right? <laughs> so and, and the and the, and might the, need to... the 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 horizontal stabilizer isn't that usually in the back on the tail, not not the nose. Yeah, normally on the tail, not on the radar. <laughs> Other than that, it looks pretty good. <laughs> it really does. Actually, look nice. isn't it a class, I, classic look at airplane? Isn't really it? impressed with the detail on yeah, this. Yeah, it's absolutely I great. Do that. Yeah. And I, I don't I, think I, I have I, the patience or the fine motor skills to put on. No, I, I uh, wrote back and said I really admired the detail in the cockpit <laughs> oh, because wow. it just looks so realistic, right down to the uh, the stick top and everything. It looks absolutely fantastic. It's amazing. Uh, in fact, if I didn't see like the desk that he has the model on i mean if you put that on something that looked like concrete or whatever i would think that that was the actually the real airplane that oh yeah it's got all the, the dirt marks and things on it as mm -hmm. well uh you Beautiful know, it's, job. it's great yeah great job all the hydraulic leak stains on the uh ailerons no, not enough. <laughs> not enough. Of it. It's too clean. <laughs> leak a lot it's too more clean. Than that. It was recently, yeah. recently washed. It does. Yeah, it looks like one that's just come out of a wash. I, I do like that one random panel on the top there. That's all nice and shiny. Then right behind it, there's a bunch of dirt. You know, like they yeah, yeah it. because yeah. that's actually probably something you would really see because they replaced that panel. Yeah, with exactly. A newly painted mm -hmm. one. Yeah, it's very well yeah. done. Very talented. And he and also said the, the color of the titanium uh, looking really good because it really does look exactly like that. And the uh, the in the the leading edge um, um, device on the on the uh, tailplane uh, mm -hmm. is perfect. I mean, just looks looks so cool. Hmm. And he said he was going to send this model to you. For his gratitude, uh, Nick. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. Oh, well, you might need to repaint it in RAF colors, and then I'll I'll, oh. I'll happily have that on my desk. Yeah, this one's uh, painted in uh, the U.S. Marines, Marine Corps uh, colors. Great job. Yeah, with shamrocks on the tails, which I guess is something that the unit had. Yeah, I don't know Although if I'd want a shamrock on my tail, I'd want a four-leaf one, because they're yeah. the lucky ones. Yeah. I thought you told me you wanted a shamrock up your tail. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Out. that too. Wow. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So thanks, Darren, um, for the for yeah, the kind words. Nice. And 
and again, congratulations for your hard work in uh, keeping control of your situation. So well done, yep. mate. Too bad we can't con keep control of our own here. Yeah. On, uh, yeah. I was, gonna, I was actually just about to write to Liz. I don't have any idea what's going on anymore. I've lost, <laughs> yeah. we've lost all control here, and I take no responsibility Steph, you for never anything had, that happened from you here You've never on had out. control here, Steph. Come but on. But I have the illusion yeah. of control. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're not giving a very that. good example today. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> okay. Um, the, the real problem is, is that I'm the only one here not drinking anything. So, oh. I mean, I'm drinking soda, but it has no alcohol in it. Yeah. Wow. What's up with that? Well, I'm all right. The, the sun's below my yard arm, so I'm the only one that's legally allowed to. I knew you had a well, yard. Well, it's only an hour till five o'clock here, but I've got- There you go things to do after the show today that are preventing me from consuming alcohol during the show. Okay. Oh, we're all wondering what that is. It's not as exciting as you might think. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Let's unlike you, Steph. for a walk? Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, sure. I don't think it has anything to do with that. Nope. No. All right. Uh, item eight. Henry, the burning forest scenario. Huh? Okay. Let's see exactly what he's talking about here. Okay. It's voice feedback. Here we go. Take it away, Henry. Hello, APG crew. This is Henry speaking from Berlin, Germany. I hope everybody of you is busy doing the daily booing pronunciation lessons. I will check your progress next time we meet. Now, I have a question which uh, crossed my mind the other day. Given the fact that two of you are about to transit to another aircraft and with Rick just finished uh, to transit to a new aircraft. And given the fact that Captain Nick back in his days with the Royal Air Force uh, flew another model every other day, I wonder how interchangeable your qualifications are when it comes to being able to fly any other aircraft out there. And I mean, not being trained to do so. In, in order to avoid you all chicken out on the answer by saying, nah, it's not safe, we must not do this, I would like to invite you to a little thought experiment. Let's pretend we are in a Hollywood movie scenario in which you are located in the middle of a huge forest. To make things worse, that forest is on fire with the flames rapidly closing in. However, there's an airport in the middle of that inferno and there's an aircraft sitting there doing nothing. From the looks of it, the aircraft is fine. The taxiways and the runway are fine too. And let's assume Getting physical access to this aircraft is of no concern for this scenario. Would you be able to jump into the left seat and somehow start up the aircraft, even check the fuel quantity, taxi to the runway and get this baby off the ground and land it somewhere else successfully? I would kindly remind you that the fire is rushing in, no time to read the checklist or anything. It is either try this or have your beautiful curls singed by the blaze. It is all or nothing. If so, what would be your major steps and settings in order to get this, get the aircraft up in the air? Flaps full and 140 knots just to be safe as some sort of rough estimate? If you say no, this is too rushy, this is no, there's no chance. Let's assume you have time to read the checklists. Would you then feel you could be successful? And to make this very clear, it has to be an aircraft you have never flown in before like some sort of Airbus for Jeff and Dana, an AMD-80 for Nick and Rick and Steph, maybe a Cessna Caravan. 
I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts about this. This is Henry from Berlin signing off. Thank you, Henry from Berlin. Well, that's not a fair question to me because I've flown a caravan. So. Yeah, I was about to say. You thought... <laughs> Let's move on to the next uh, item in our feedback. Yeah. Oh, uh... <laughs> that's a really good. I want to hear how Nick thinks that he will tackle this in a in a mad dog. Well, I think before he does, it's going to be it's an easy answer okay. for me because all I have to do is hit that button that says "Go fly," isn't it? What, what does it say? Base take off. Yeah. Airbus, take off. Take yeah. off. Yeah. I just push the button, and then I don't have to know anything. It just does it magically. Yep. I, I, mean, it, I mean, if we're being honest, if that, that movie, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, 7,500. 7,500. I mean, he literally mm. cut, cut it off. That on. was exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. I was, <laughs> no, no, no. I just Remember, watched that last night. No, did you? Yeah. Earlier, I said there was something I was going to say during our game. Oh, yeah. Okay. That was that what was it was. Okay. I was going to talk about the fact that I watched that movie, 7,500. Okay. Dang it. Oh, well, we'll do that next if you want to. You managed to watch it, did you? I got th 20 minutes through, and I and I and thought, that, that idiot's going to open the cockpit door. And I thought, I'm not going to bother watching it anymore. <laughs> let's, let's hold that thought, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I think hold it will be thought. fun to talk about 7,500. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I just – the only thing I can say is I uh, would probably – what are they called? Animals that are burnt uh, in a forest fire. Um Something about a something critter. Um, crispy, crispy, crispy critter. critter. I would be a crispy critter because even in the airplane that I used to be qualified to fly, I'm not even sure I could figure out how to start the engines. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you know that. That's I think is the biggest hurdle. Uh, what, getting the damn thing ready to taxi. I think if you could, someone could give you an airplane with the engines running. None of us would have too many problems working out how we're going to get it airborne. Right. But getting the start procedure right, uh, it, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, some airplanes Very are easy. Difficult. You just hit Very the button, difficult. and then, but then sometimes you got to hit the button, and then at a certain point, you got to put the fuel lever on to a certain position. Yeah. Um, or every airplane's a bit different. Right. And that's really, honestly, I think that would be the toughest part. In an airplane I've never flown before, I don't know exactly how to get the thing going. I, I would be burnt to a crisp. Yeah. So that, I'm, I'm being honest. Right. You know, I, I would like to think of myself as someone who could jump into anything at a moment's notice and figure it out and fly it away and be the hero. But no, I'm not that guy. Um, Nick. Um, yeah, well, that's it. Well, once you're sitting in the seat as well, uh, you know, everything is so damn close. Uh, it's very hard to get an overall picture of uh, w what switches there are where they're not always clearly marked as to exactly what function or what order you put them on. You could very easily just spend half an hour trying to puzzle your way through an engine start and, uh, and still not get it right. So no guarantee. However, someone gave you a um, an engine running aircraft, I think we'd all probably put the flaps about halfway down. I think we'd uh, manage to taxi it out of the runway, no problem, even if we just used differential braking. It works in a very similar manner, uh, even if we couldn't find the tiller. Once we pointed down the runway, you just plant the thrust levers or our throttles uh, to the the stops and uh, just set off down there. And when it feels like it wants to fly, heave back away you go. It's, it's really not that hard. And the same for landing. When you find yourself a runway, you uh, put the flaps all the way down, put the gear down, plant it on at speeds, 
yeah, you you can basically say, yeah, 150, 160 knots would not be a bad speed to land most airliners at. Uh, so uh, if you err on the cautious side, I was about to say, I was like, I, I, that's well, I'm saying fast. that. That yeah, quite honestly, if you pick a big enough runway, then yeah. having an extra 20 knots or so, or even 30 knots, is not a big deal. Much better that way than be 30 knots slow and end up plowing Seen in a rub. mile short of the runway. So, uh, Robert yeah. actually had the idea I had. I just want something that's a hand prop aircraft to like a Piper Cub or something, just run over mags on. Yeah. So if this know? thing was like a turboprop or something like that, I don't even have any. I, I've never flown an airplane. I've never flown a turboprop. I would have no idea how to start the engine. And then yeah, this, if you gave all me this stuff with, for all these pilot, different levers, I'd, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, yeah, we'll put, we'll put Jeff in the caravan and see how it goes. Yeah. Where do you uh, put it's the not going to go well. Lever. You don't want to do that. I mean, but, do you have the pitch on course or fine for takeoff? I don't know. Do you? Huh? Yeah, if you've got variable pitch on, on an aer- airplane, props forward, props forward, props yeah. forward. forward. Is that yeah. course or fine? What? So you, What's medium course. That's coffee. See, Never so mind. It, it, it's, it's either feathered, feathered, or all the way forward. There's. What's, what's course? What's well, course? no, you can. I mean, you can pull the props back to um, to reduce that the blade angle. But I don't think we use yeah. course or fine and. Yeah, I'm not sure we're going to speaking the same you're talking about language. Airplanes with um, automatic uh, pitch, aren't you? I guess. Right. Yeah. I'm talking about props. manual pitch. If you've got, oh, okay. if you've got to set your own um, propeller oh. pitch at different stages through the flight, you'd need. I thought you had to do that anyway, didn't yeah, you? You, don't you, have get, to? you got to. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never flown an airplane like that. That's I, what I'm saying. I've, I've never, never heard of I've never heard So, I think you do mean course. Do I? I don't know. Are we speaking they, the same? They, all the, the only airplane I've flown that had one of these was some kind of a Piper. And so, course or feather. Fine. Yeah. So, feather is 87 degrees. You don't want to feather. Right. No, but I'm just, going, I'm just going back through. So, that's. are you talking about that's fine? The, uh, everything's I, no, fine. No, I'm, I'm talking about the <laughs> settings. <laughs> one said course, one said fine. So, no, they don't say course or fine. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They're talking <laughs> British airplanes. <laughs> Of course they do. <laughs> there you go. Hamish has got it. Look. No, he had it. He had it. He had it oh, Liz, I'm gonna. He have has, to, he has it backwards. Anyway. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to disconnect with Liz. <laughs> It's horrible. It's just horrible. She said this is a dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's worse than a train wreck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> your dumpster fire. It's worse. I, I think we should cut to the plane tail so, while you're gathering us. <laughs> Henry, Jeff. basically, yeah, it would not be a good thing at all. We, probably most of us would die. I, I, I think we would all struggle with now starting. You see, look, this, this bloke knows. Fine yeah. for takeoff, course for cruise. There you go. That's simple enough. I, have you ever flown a turboprop? I haven't flown a turboprop, but I've flown Then airplanes. how do you know? Okay, that's probably, that's probably the reason why right there. You know, I, 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 went, I went from... From 150 to a jet, you know, there you go. There's the problem right there. Yeah. But, well, that's yeah, essentially that, what I did. Yeah. yeah. So but there's you, a lot of things in aviation we wouldn't understand if we got into the wrong airplane. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I was just going to say, you know, the, I think the hardest thing would be 
button location because every time you sit down on an airplane, the first thing you got to do is like, okay, well, where's all the buttons I need to know about or levers or switches and all that. And then, but if this is like big fire and you just got, it doesn't matter if you, you just got to get the airplane started and going down the runway and take off and get away from the fire before you push get, all the buttons, pull all the levers. There you go. That's <laughs> <Yes>. our advice. <laughs> Push all of them. See what happens. Were <laughs> we talking about that earlier? <laughs> well, oh yeah, we were with um, uh, Liz trying or Nick trying to get his uh, focus right to work because it updated. He just pushed all. That's buttons. what he was doing. Just pushing all the buttons. <laughs> like a true Airbus pilot, just, just push all the it, buttons. keep pushing buttons until it works. <laughs> until it works. Yeah. Oh man! Now. For those of you listening who might have some anxiety about flying, um, we're probably giving you a really, really yeah. a bad idea. Yeah. So, yeah. So normally we go to training, and and sometimes our I'll training. Next week. Yeah, we're, um, our training, like for initial training on a new airplane that we've not flown before, can last a month and a half to two or three months, yep. and that's the reason for it. So that we, when we actually get into an airplane, we know what to do. We know how to start the engines, and we know what flap settings to use and all that kind of stuff. So don't you worry. This is a hypothetical situation that Henry, by the way, uh, Liz, would you make sure that we block Henry from ever setting his feet again? Mm-hmm. He's gone. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Just kidding, Henry. That was a good question. And it was fun discussion. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Steph here. I'm just coming back to record a little bit extra after we finished um, episode 433, which we recorded earlier this week. Um, I'm not sure if Jeff will add this into the show or put it um, as a separate, uh, like a bonus crew log or something like that, but I did want to come back and um, address something that uh, we talked about on the show that we were struggling with a little bit. And um, part of that was my fault for being a little bit disengaged during that particular piece of feedback because of a work issue I was trying to simultaneously deal with and and kind of um, be on the show at the exact same time. So my apologies for that because it definitely was distracting me and I was uh, not fully engaged with what we were talking about in the moment. Um, The feedback I'm referencing is Henry from Berlin asking us about the thought experiment of being um, in a, the middle of a burning forest, which just happens to have an airport and an aircraft park there. Um, and our only hope of escape is to jump into this aircraft and fly it safely away from the rapidly approaching flames. The only catch is it's an aircraft we've never flown before and are not familiar with and have no training on. Um, so I actually um, had my uh, uh, moment of not listening fully to the uh, feedback. So I was trying to go back and re-listen to it while Nick was talking. And I came back in and he was talking about trying to um, figure out propeller uh, settings if he was going to be flying a a propeller-driven aircraft. Um, and he was referencing fine versus coarse uh, prop angles. And uh, that kind of threw me for a loop because I've actually not really used those terms to describe it before. So I just wanted to come back in and give a little bit more detail on um how you might figure that out if you were in this hypothetical situation. So I believe Nick was talking about flying a Cessna caravan or something similar. And for simplicity's sake, for those who are detail-oriented, we'll assume this is a Pratt & Whitney PT-6 engine variant. Um, Although, oddly enough, the caravan that I flew most recently 
was a Texas turbine um, conversion with a Garrett direct drive engine, which does introduce some differences with the, the prop control. Um, but we'll, we'll gloss over that for the moment and just get into what it means to have to control the pitch of a, or the, the blade angle, I should say, of a uh, modern turboprop uh, uh, aircraft. So basically we're talking about an aircraft with a constant speed propeller, um, but the way that you achieve a constant rotational speed is by adjusting the pitch of the propeller. Now, why do you want to do that? Well, the engine is going to be most efficient at a certain RPM setting. So if you can change the thrust while maintaining the most efficient engine RPM possible, um, you're, you're definitely going to be more efficient here. Now let's say you've just climbed into this hypothetical aircraft that's sitting on the ground um, and you're going to start it. So for a free turbine engine in this case, uh, the engine will be started with the propeller in the feather position. So um, what we mean by feathering is that the angle of the blade, of the propeller blade, is 90 degrees. So if you're sitting in the aircraft and looking uh, from the perspective of the propeller, you'll see that it is almost a knife edge appearance and that the um, propeller is aligned parallel with your direction of travel. And this is what Nick is referring to as a chorus angle. Um, it's almost 90 degrees or, or essentially 90 degrees. Now, why the heck would you want the uh, propeller to be feathered like this. Um, well, if you have an engine uh, that needs to be shut down in flight, you want to reduce the amount of air that that prop blade is going to be seeing. So if you can align it with your direction of travel, uh, you significantly reduce the drag. Um, so again, that's course angle, feathered, 90 degrees or thereabouts. Now, as the engine starts to warm up, what you want to do is you want to unfeather the propeller and put it near a flat pitch so that it's not going to produce um, or it's not going to take a big bite out of the air, so it's not going to start to move you forward while you're sitting there and doing other um, checks and, and things like that. So you move it to a very fine angle, which is closer to flat or near zero degrees. So again, if you're looking from the um, perspective of the propeller as you're moving forward, you'll see that the blade uh, presents almost its full uh, face towards you. In that case, it's, it's more um, perpendicular as opposed to parallel. Now I mentioned at the beginning of this that we're talking about um, a propeller setup where we have a constant speed unit, which will uh, vary the blade angle to maintain a constant uh, RPM setting for the propeller. Um, and again, this is done for efficiency purposes. And I'm going to try to keep this explanation as simple as possible. So we're going to gloss over here things like beta and reverse. But if you are operating in the uh, constant speed um, range of the propeller, you can generally select um, using the prop lever um, that the propeller will be in a percentage of uh, uh, total RPM available. So uh, normal takeoff is uh, 96 or so percent, normal cruise somewhere closer to 75 percent, and then the blade angles are adjusted by the constant speed unit uh, through a governor and a reduction gear uh, box and um, all of that stuff that Miami Rick could probably go into very, very detailed explanations on, but which I'm not going to. Um, so anywhere between 
a fine angle so that you can maximize your RPM setting um, at takeoff, which would probably be somewhere around 17 degrees. Um, and then it will increase in through cruise again to maintain that efficiency for you to a more coarse angle. And that way, if you're taking a bigger bite of the air with that more coarse angle, you can reduce the uh, power setting of the engine itself and again, be more efficient. Um, so hopefully this helps. I'm sorry we didn't do a very good job of explaining this on the show. I actually felt really bad about that in the moment um, because these are principles that we do understand and should be able to share with you easily. Uh, hopefully that all makes sense. And if it doesn't, I'll leave it to Rick to give a, a more detailed explanation the next time he's on the show. Anyway, assuming that perhaps Jeff has just gone ahead and inserted this um, little audio clip following our uh, discussion of Henry's feedback, uh, I will go ahead and throw it back to the live show in progress. Cheers, y'all. Oh, um, yeah. Do, do we want to talk about 75? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to talk about that 7,500? Yeah, let's talk about 7,500. Why and, not? And spoiler alert for... Everybody, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So if you if this is a uh, an Amazon Prime movie, mm-hmm. and um, Landon on the last episode sent an audio feedback regarding it and talking about how realistic he thought it was, um, not only for the flying aspects but also the uh, law enforcement aspect of it. Uh, I have to say, at the very end, it was kind of it left me like that's it like what yeah, f- yeah right. what same... just happened yeah yeah it's like i was yeah, expecting so I more it... of a wrap-up to that i watched but... it last night while i was on the uh, treadmill for a very long time uh-huh. um and i had the same i was like okay uh, and i was looking at the time remaining so i was trying to time how long i was running for and also changing out laundry and stuff and i was like okay there's just a few minutes and i was like how are they going to resolve all this in the next few minutes and then it was just over yep the only criticism that i'll oh, go ahead nick what, what was his name nick yeah, I, 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 I wasn't going to say anything, but now you oh, asked I, me to. I'm, I'm sorry, I um, thought you were saying something. I, I was cringing because uh, I could see in my mind that he was about to open the cockpit door. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I and cringing. I said, <laughs> no pilot in his right mind is ever going to open that cockpit door. And anyway, he's in Europe. He can have that airplane on the ground in 15 minutes, more or less. There's there's hardly anywhere in Europe where there isn't an airfield that you can put it down. And he's faffing about there. And what's more, he's going to open the cockpit door, and I'm just going to get so angry with him. I just so – I'm going to throw something through the front of the television. So before I got to that point, I turned it off. I couldn't were, watch anymore. We, you know, Steve and I had a long discussion about it in our drive. Yeah. Um, there were certain, I mean, as a whole, as far as movies dealing with aviation, it was mostly pretty accurate. It's above average. Way above average. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah the aviation stuff was fine. It was yeah. the story when they were that I had. starting the airplane up and getting it airborne, I thought, hey, this this looks like I could see any this. one of our trips. Yeah, right. it looks really good. But when it when it, when it failed for me again, spoiler alerts for people that haven't seen the movie. You know, we apologize. It's still worth watching the movie, even you know, listening to what we have to say about it. Uh, but the thing that bothered me the most, as far as realism is concerned, is that once this whole event started to you know, it's not really a spoiler alert to tell you it was a hijacking because the name of the movie is seventy five hundred, which is the That's, code for hijacking. Yeah, so. 
the thing that really kind of bothered me was that at one point he just basically turns it to a certain heading and descends out of their cruise level to a, another altitude. And that's pretty much it. And then everything, all this other drama is going on. And I get it. You know, most people aren't going to be paying attention to the reality of the fact that there's a lot of stuff that's going to be going on actually flying an airplane, even if it's on automation. Um, and as Nick mentioned, the fact that they even say in the movie that, you know, go to this place first, it's closest, it's only like 20 minutes away. But from that point until the end of the movie, it was like over an hour. Yeah, it was. So that was like, put the airplane on the ground instead of dealing with all the stuff. I was yelling at my television because I was saying, just fly <laughs> yeah, the airplane too. and get it on me the too. ground. Yeah. Like, what yeah. are you doing? But of course, it wouldn't be a really good movie. As well, far as the drama is yeah, concerned, yeah, I mean, if he like, did that, it's like, and I was expecting it to like they're, they're going on the ground and then like refuel, get back up in the air, like get another pilot or something to carry it on that way. But no, you're going to fly around for an hour. Then it's the, you clearly hear the controller say, "What was it? Hanover's twenty minutes away." And it's like, yeah. well, yeah, 40... and he was like, "We want to go back to Berlin," and they're like, "That's thirty minutes, but Hanover's twenty minutes away." Like, yeah, that, that's that horrible. Weather. And then it yeah. was way more than twenty minutes. <laughs> exactly, and, yeah. and then the other thing too. I, I don't fly the Airbus, but I've run up front a good bit of times. He kept engaging and disconnecting the autopilot on the center where the, I guess the disconnect and reconnect button is. I'm like, do you not want to use the side stick to disconnect? I mean, he That's kept reaching over to do it. Yeah. I mean, I just. I, That's the it just made it more interesting because the arm was stick. injured and he couldn't, you know. Yeah. So you you can disconnect it using the same button you engage it, but it okay. sets oh, okay. off the alarm. So and it's a bit of a it, sh it wakes the other pilot up. The other so, pilot uh, was dead. <laughs> uh, he might have been just sleeping. You're spoiling Sorry. it for everybody. Now come on, I, I was kind of making a joke. Yeah, if you <laughs> if you on. use the button to disconnect it, it'll come up with a warning and oh, a caution will okay. go. If you just use the instinctive disconnect on the uh, stick, then it just goes blah blah, and that's yeah. it. You know, oh, okay. it's disconnected. Gotcha. The one other thing that I noticed, um, I, there was one scene where he had to do something, and like he had dis he disconnected, and then the plane's just like flying along for like ten minutes in straight and level flight. I'm like, I know it's an Airbus, but I don't know any plane that flies straight and level on whatever heading for ten minutes and it not like oscillate one way or another. That was just like, okay, come on, well, maybe it can. I don't know. I don't know. Would that be it? realistic? <laughs> if you took it off autopilot and just didn't touch the stick, would it just fly solid? It would probably wouldn't deviate that much. But uh, if if uh, if there's a gust of wind that tilts it, it will try and bring it to where it was before because you haven't put an input in. So it goes, uh, well, you didn't do that on purpose, so I'm just going to try. But it's not that good. It'll yeah. it'll basically meander around. But it's like most airplanes. If it's well trimmed out, an airplane will tootle along reasonably well. It'll deviate a few hundred feet, perhaps a few thousand feet. Uh, but it's not going to suddenly turn into a screaming Jesus dive. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Show title. <laughs> yeah, there it is right there. <laughs> no, wow. just kidding. <laughs> Not really. That was dark. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank goodness. Anyway, um, so my take on it was airplane stuff was fine. Story was not my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but really, what was so the story part of it, aspect of it, what, what didn't you think was fine stuff? Uh, just the 
I mean, everything you've already gone into, the realism of like the timeline of how everything would unfold. Oh, so, and, yeah. Okay. And, so I thought that was like and the, the way, technical and there was like flying no, stuff. No, 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 not, no, no. The, that stuff was fine. Oh, it I was, misunderstood um, you then. Okay. Yeah. No, just, just the character development was kind of not great. And, oh, so you did mean that then. Okay. Oh. And yeah, I, was, I just thought it took a lot for that ending at the movie to happen. Like if that was mm-hmm. in America, that guy would have been, yeah, that would have been done already. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Just my thoughts. Anyway, yeah, no, I mean we're watch it. Watch it for the avi- aviation aspect if you want, and uh, if you like the the plot line, then bonus. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've seen a lot worse aviation movies. That's for sure. Airplane. No, that's the best. <laughs> <laughs> and most realistic. Yeah. Okay. Everything's right in that movie. <laughs> oh yeah airplane that's very realistic yes. absolutely that totally happens every that, flight yes without absolutely. without question all right well i know it's a bit early for us to uh do the plane tale just a little bit early uh but i think it would be a good time for us to uh, do that and maybe we'll reset and when we come back we'll be very professional and it'll be just the best show ever highly unlikely Highly unlikely. Highly unlikely, yes. Yeah. Do you have more of those beers, Stephen? Yeah, I, I, so. I, I think i got three more left. <laughs> oh, wow. Just crack open okay. another one. Well, in the meantime, while we're drinking this wonderful beer, let's listen to this week's installment of The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Here we go. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. The Rare Red Hawk. On April the 1st, 2011, a little-known story of intrigue and tension within the usually calm and placid country of Canada came to light. I need you to cast your mind back to a time when relations between North America and very North America, better known by producer Liz as her beloved country of Canada, and their southern neighbours were far from calm. This little-known affair of the 1960s has become notorious in government circles and is variously referred to as the stab in the backyard, the fishbed flap, the Red Hawk incident, or more ominously, the Canuck invasion crisis. Relations between the two countries were brought to a breaking point and members of Congress were ready to apply sanctions, while senior commanders of the United States Air Force were eager to confront the Royal Canadian Air Force in the air. The commander of the Strategic Air Command, General Curtis LeMay, apparently stated, My solution to the problem would be to tell those frozen Canuck bastards, frankly, that they've got to draw in their horns and stop their aggression, or we're going to bomb them into the Stone Age. To understand what had got everyone so upset, we must start with the remarkable 1953 Canadian project to build a world-beating Mach 2, 50,000-foot-plus fighter, the Avro Canada CF-105 Arrow. Tired of manufacturing aircraft designed by others, a new generation of Canadians were determined to produce Canadian designs and the Arrow was going to be the aircraft of their dreams. Freed from the conventional ways of thinking that limited Avro's rivals, the firm's engineers were going to work on revolutionary jet fighters 
commercial airliners, flying saucers and even a space plane that would place Canada at the technological cutting edge of the new jet age. On the 4th of October 1957, 14,000 people watched a large hangar on the outskirts of Toronto open to reveal a beautiful, large, white, delta-winged aircraft. The aircraft was the Avro Arrow Interceptor. A third longer and broader than most of today's fighters, the Arrow could fly as fast as Concorde and had the potential to go even faster. It was Canada's 250 million, that's 1.6 billion dollar in today's money, bid to become an aviation superpower. It was bold and elegant and would serve as the Royal Canadian Air Force's primary interceptor in the 1960s and beyond. But not long after the 1958 start of its flight test program, the development of the Arrow, including its Orenda Iroquois jet engines, was abruptly and controversially halted, sparking a long and bitter political debate that still simmers today. To most Canadians, the Avro Arrow was a heart-achingly beautiful aircraft a breathtaking and futuristic symbol of a nation imbued with new technological confidence. Suffused with the thrill of standing at the very edge of scientific achievement, the Canadians were abruptly yanked backwards the day the Arrow program was cancelled, and many Canadians who were alive that day still feel the sting. The action effectively put Avro out of business and scattered its highly skilled engineering and production personnel to companies all around the world. The pain of failure and urge to strike out also impacted military officers and senior government bureaucrats with equal force. Within two months of the project cancellation, all aircraft, engines, production tooling and technical data were ordered scrapped, and many mid- and high-level bureaucrats at the Department of National Defence were convinced that American political pressure had been applied to get the Canadian project cancelled in order to sell the new F-104 and F-101 fighters to Canada. Some believed it was Prime Minister Diefenbaker's personal decision, and a few in the inner circle believed that the then Minister of National Defence, George Piekers, was being blackmailed by an East German Matahari. It had been on the creaking wooden floors of DND's Hunter Building on O'Connor Street that the idea of an all-Canadian fighter interceptor had emerged amongst the Air Force veterans of World War II, the pilots, navigators and intelligence men known as the Hunter Boys. These men now believed they knew the culprit, the American military-industrial complex as it was named by Eisenhower. The Americans were not fearful of the Arrow's promised capabilities. They had laughed at the suggestion. What they wanted was the Canadian market for military aircraft. 
At the time, Canada had one of the largest air forces in the world, with scores of impressively well-equipped bases stretching from Newfoundland to Vancouver, and hundreds of fighter aircraft with hundreds more utility and transport aircraft. If Canada took to building its own aircraft, its independence would divert billions of dollars into the Canadian economy that could have been heading south of the border with the carcasses of their beloved arrows cut into scrap and the promise of independence from the United States dashed, the Hunter Boys sought a form of revenge so daring, so complete, that it would touch every American. They would set in motion a plan to purchase replacement fighters not from the United States, not even from Western Europe, but from the Eastern Bloc. During secret meetings held in the darkened tap room of the Bytown Inn, just across O'Connor Street from the Hunter Building, they conceived a strategy which would be known as the Labatt's Conspiracy. In a matter of weeks, they had set in motion a plan to confer with key Soviet officials. Low, mid and then high-level talks and meetings were sought between RCAF senior officers and the Soviet leaders, and by June 1959 the procurement team had made approaches to diplomats and party officials at the Embassy of the Soviet Union in Ottawa's Sandy Hill. In late August of 1959, a large team of Canadian officials, including Air Commodore Rowe, a number of test pilots and some aeronautical engineering experts from the Paul Kisman Institute flew by RCAF North Star to West Berlin. From here they were discreetly escorted through Berlin checkpoints and on to the East German Air Force Base at Holzdorf in Schleswig-Holstein. There they were given unprecedented access to the previously secret MiG-21F. NATO designation Fishbed Bravo, and given a full demonstration by an up-and-coming Soviet test pilot named Yuri Gagarin. The Canadians were concerned about the MiG short range, but were very impressed with its Mach 2 capability and its rate of acceleration. Interpreters for the delegation translated Gagarin's grinning comments after the show as MiG-21 is lightning bolt across the mother Russia. MiG-21 runs like a scolded dog on Nevsky Prospect. The successful flying display led to the highest level talks yet between first deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers of the Soviet Union, Anastas Mikoyan, the brother of Artem Mikoyan, one of the USSR's greatest aircraft designers, and Prime Minister John George Diefenbaker. Though the subject of the meeting was secret in every way, it was deemed a good idea to hold them in plain sight, and so, on the main floor of a trade fair in West Berlin, amidst vast 400-pound colour TVs, steam-powered lawnmowers, atomic ovens and toasters the size of tombstones, in the Soviet Union's vast gallery of progress and household joys, a deal was struck. 
The agreement ratified that day set in motion a series of steps that would strain Canadian-American relations for decades. The speed at which all this happened was fueled on Canada's end by Air Commodore Rowe's intense need for revenge and on the Soviet side by unbridled glee at the prospect of extending their influence to the 49th parallel. By their willingness to shop in the Soviet weapons market, the Russians were convinced that the Canadians were turning towards communism, bolstered by the fact that Canada was in the throes of socialising their entire national health care system. Over the next three months, 30 shiny new MiGs were selected from the factory line at the Mikoyanoke B plant outside Moscow, dissembled, crated, and shipped by rail to the White Sea port of Severodivinsk. Throughout the months of February and March of 1960, a series of rusty Russian freighters were loaded with crated aircraft under the cover of darkness. One by one they weighed anchor and took a course north and then west out to the open sea bound for the east coast of Canada. Each ship was secretly shadowed all the way by a Russian submarine. Discreetly offloaded at the port of Bathurst, New Brunswick, the ships disgorged their crates onto CNR flatbeds under the supervision of Air Force MPs. The shrouded cars were then coupled to a locomotive and sent on a two-hour overland journey south to RCAF Station Chatham, the base for the Fighter Conversion Unit for Canadian Sabres. Here, under airtight security, Mikoyan technical representatives supervised the reassembly of the fighters as they arrived, and a team of four pilots from the East German Air Force carried out nighttime flight training with pilots of 441 Squadron who had been brought home under secret orders from Marville, France, where they had been stationed. Over the next two to three months, Flight training proceeded apace, and by late June 1960, the Canadian pilots were ready for a ferry flight to their eventual home base of Cold Lake, Alberta. But first, they had to pick a name for their new fighter, which the RCAF was calling the CF-121. At this time, the Canadian aerobatic demonstration team, the Golden Hawks, were stationed at the other side of the base. The squadron commander, squadron leader Stefan Schwilka, inspired by the Hawks, named the new type the Red Hawk. More creative squadron pilots nicknamed it the Stratocaster, or Strat, a name that paralleled their German instructors who called the MiG-21 the Balalaika. Before dawn on June the 23rd, 1960, Nine pairs of CF-121 Red Hawk fighters started up on the flight line. Though ramp lights were kept off for secrecy, ground crew could see for the first time the freshly applied 441 Silver Fox squadron checkerboard tail markings, aircraft numerals, RCAF titles and roundels. The shrieking Tomansky turbojets turned the ramp into a noisy inferno as each gleaming fighter lurched forwards in turn, wheeled left and taxied in line to the end of runway 25. 
There, in pairs, they lit the afterburners and thundered down the runway to take off into history. Radio silence was to be kept the entire way. An hour later, right after sunrise, as commuters were just beginning to bustle into the city of Montreal, nine pairs of MiGs began letting down towards St. Hubert, with the sun rising like a brilliant white disc behind them. While the tower was expecting them, the radar station at RCAF station Victoriaville was not. A curious technician saw the MiGs descending and dashed inside and sounded an alarm that would send a pair of standby interceptors from their combat-ready hangars to launch and intercept them. The MiGs got down just as a pair of CF-100s from 425 Squadron lifted off. They got away with it this time, but soon the story would break. Finally at Cold Lake, 441 Squadron started working up with their MiGs for their first big exercise, Rolling Cossack, in late July. Although the CF-100s of 433 Squadron dominated the Red Hawks, they were gaining experience quickly. Now the RCAF knew it was just a matter of time before the US learned of the Red Hawk program. In fact, they were surprised they'd managed to keep a lid on it for so long. But it was during the next exercise, Perogi, that two major events happened. One of the Red Hawks finally fell victim to its lack of range and flamed out south of Cold Lake, crashing near a small hamlet called Glendon in Alberta. The other, more dramatic event, was a photograph taken by a U.S. serviceman on a camping trip near Moose Lake, who took a grainy image of four Red Hawks streaking past in close formation. It was soon plastered on the front page of every newspaper in America, Canada and Europe. To say the least, everyone save the Hunter Boys and the Soviets were stunned. The New York Times printed the headline, Canadian Plot Foiled, U.S. Airman Saves Nation, whilst the Chicago Tribune ran with a simple, Canadian Communist Shocker, and the Washington Post used a double entendre, bordering on evil, Soviet fighters amass at border. Canadian and American diplomats were scrambling to understand what was taking place. In one day, the security focus of the United States turned 180 degrees from Cuba to Canada, and for the next week, U-2 flights were ordered day and night over Canadian military bases. National Guard units from Maine to Montana were mobilized, and infantry units, mechanized units, and Bomark SAM missile batteries began to pile up along the 49th parallel. Vice President Richard Nixon spat acidic, invective, and inflammatory comments and used a now famous phrase. Soviet Kanukistan has dropped the Iron Curtain along the 49th, and the United States of America will tear it down and wipe Canada clean with it. It sent massive shivers rippling through the Canadian Parliament. 
1961, President Kennedy had been inaugurated and promised to mend the fences between both nations. The term shuttle diplomacy was first coined during the Red Hawk incident as delegations flew back and forth between Washington and Ottawa. If Canada guaranteed the end of Red Hawk, the United States would remove their military units positioned along the border, allow American aircraft to be license-built in Canada, and seriously consider socializing their healthcare system. Now all that exists of those CF-121s are a few photographs and an old gate guard at CFB Cold Lake. This story emerged following a remarkable piece of detective work by D.H. Yelamo, who first published it on the 1st of April 2011 on the Vintage Wings of Canada website under the title The Breaking Point. My thanks to Chris Postal for innocently suggesting I cover the subject. Oh, that's an amazing story I've never heard of. No, yeah, that was Mm-mm. crazy. <laughs> I loved it, actually. I, I, I'm going to give Chris the benefit of the doubt and uh, just assume he was uh, joshing me. He was trying to get me to do a story that um, <laughs> wasn't based entirely in truth. But uh, I'm hoping he'll write to me and tell me whether he actually realized that the story he had found was an April Fool's joke. So, oh, and to be fair, it took me some time to work it out. Figure that I was out. Going, yeah, I don't remember that. So it was an oh, April Fool's joke. Yes, it was. Um, okay, so that last slide is find out. Okay. If you didn't know, the only way that you're going to find out was at the end of this amazing article uh, on the website that I mentioned uh, was to click at their, um, they got, right at the end, they've got a little donate button. Uh, that's right. Uh, for information, you can contribute to Save the Strat Program at VW. Click here. And when you click there, it goes to the page that says, oh, it's an April Fool. But if you weren't, if you were a mean so-and-so, didn't want to do that. If you were uncharitable. Then, Exactly right. Then you might be taken in by it because uh, it was so well written. And I mm-hmm. I had to praise it quite a lot to fit it in, but I just loved it. I thought it was <laughs> so, so much detail, fantastic <laughs> photographs. We were talking like during that, you know, when we were mics muted and we were listening to this thinking, I've never heard of this story before. This looks like uh, Migs. Exactly right. so <laughs> I take my be? hat off to the author who did a damn good job. Uh, and uh, I only hope I told it well enough. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, it's not April the 1st today, but it might be one day. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll be uh, replayed on the next time we have a show on April 1st. Oh, yeah, it might. We, we might. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that might be, be appropriate. And yeah. well told, as always, Nick. Oh, yes. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. Loved it. Yes, goes without saying. Always very well done. All right. But I'll continue to say it anyway, even though it's not. Well, necessary. you're a gentleman, Jeff. Well, I try to be. 
Uh, is that, is that, was that Steph's like snickering? Snicker? Yeah, that was from that HR was, that was there. I was laughing at um, the sincerity in Nick's voice as he said uh-huh. it. Is what right. I was laughing at. Right. Yeah. Sure. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Which one? Moving on. Where were we? Which uh, number nine, yeah. I think. After the forest fire. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. PJ Navigators. Thank you. Number nine. PJ. Hi, crew. So today, I was on the road and working on the boat quite a while. To quantify that while I've listened to almost three full APG episodes. Yes, I know. It's pathological, I suppose. Yeah, it is. Sorry. <laughs> One thing caught my eye or ear actually when you read the rule or when you read the rules for flight engineers. It was clear that one of the key duties of a flight engineer was to make sure the navigator didn't snooze off. Now, we all know flight engineers have disappeared from all but a few aircraft, but no, but no one, I think, knows when navigators have disappeared. Is there any chance that with the disappearance of flight engineers, all those navigators have just nodded off in the E&E compartments and no one ever checked on them? <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. Of, uh, <laughs> a lot of sleeping navigators in the yeah. E&E compartments. Uh. In short, is there a huge number of sleepy navigators that we all don't know about? I'm sure. Sure. Because, no, I'm not going to say it. Um, <laughs> I, I was just imagine <laughs> then going, going to a museum and finding one of these old airplanes, and uh, you peer into the navigator's compartment, and there's just this desiccated body there. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Yeah. Good visual. Um, Jim Howard and Mike Dell, please send your email to we love navigators at airlinepilotguide.com. We'll, we'll handle your, or comp- I'm offended. At I'm offended. Pilot. That works too. <laughs> yeah. We're getting more and more email to that address actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in those COVID-19 days with all the aircraft and dry storage, are they starving? Talking about navigation of flight, one of my flight instructors was an amazing lifelong aviator. Ernst was a Luftwaffe pilot in World War II. By the way, many of you don't understand or realize that Luftwaffe means red balloons in English. Just kidding. That's uh, uh, (laughs) something I said in an earlier episode that uh, was not actually anything close to reality. Um, Ernst was a Luftwaffe pilot in World War II flying in the Med. And albeit they had radio navigation aids, he also had to navigate by sextant and explained that to me once. A fantastic ability that I thought I understood at the time but could not do anymore. One of the greatest stories he always told was the one of being able to fly gliders again after the war in 1951. They had a SG-38 like this. Okay, he's given us a YouTube link. So SG-38 hidden away in Farms Barn? Farmer's Barn? Frame? I think you meant frames. In a Farmer's Barn? Oh, Farmer's Farmer's Barn. Ah, The R somehow Mm -hmm. dropped uh, somewhere, put it back together, pulled it up a hill and launched it by a rubber rope that was pulled out by eight or ten runners. And this is what this looks like. Again, another link to YouTube. Uh, Ernst always said that in the evening, he went home to his wife that night and explained to her that today I've flown 16 seconds, and I'm sure you understand what that meant for him. Um, Okay. Uh, There's another link to uh, Flickr.com for um, some photos. Uh, For his 70th aviation anniversary, we gave him a flight 
with the very aircraft type that he originally learned to fly on, a Focke-Wulf 44 Stieglitz, basically the German counterpart of the U.S. Stearman. Ernst gave up his CFI license at the age of 90. Wow. That's that's yeah, impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> Sadly, died five years ago at the age of 95. Wow, that's a long life. I've never mm. flown with a kinder man, and there would be many more stories to tell about him. And again, another link to uh, Flickr and some photos of, uh, of this gentleman. Thank you all. Thank you for all you do and hope you all get to fly again soon. Best, PJ. Thanks, PJ. What a great story. It is. And, and those videos are definitely worth looking at. That that style of glider, the SG-38, there was a very similar one in the UK at the time called the Grasshopper. And uh, basically it's a skid with a bit of uh, scaffolding around it and a pair of wings. You're basically sitting in the open there's there's no nothing around you at all you're perched on a seat on a skid and uh bungee launching was very common uh, for those kind of uh gliders in that period and, and you'll remember perhaps uh, my father telling me uh telling me that uh, that's the way he started in aviation with with a, a gliders club launching one of these uh on a beach in australia and uh, that's exactly what people were flying in those days. Uh, and it was a, an early glider the Air Cadets uh, used. So it's quite remarkable and uh, uh, great fun. Didn't have a very good glide ratio, I might point out. And one was a bit exposed to the elements. Yeah, I was watching the um, YouTube video of that. It, it is rather exposed to the elements, isn't it? But yeah, but great. I'm surprised fun, it, it didn't have a glide ratio, though. Sorry, miss that. It didn't have a good glide ratio. You said. Did I don't not? think so. No, <laughs> it's a no. glider, though, right? Yeah. Okay. You can't go around. <laughs> yeah. You can never go around. Um, but I thought gliders are supposed to have a good glide ratio. I mean, I yeah, just thought uh, that's why there are gliders. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently, well, this was an early I, attempt, right? Uh, yeah, if, I think if you've got a, a, a huge wingspan and incredibly light, strong material to build it out of, you do get a very good glide ratio. But I think these early ones weren't quite that way. They didn't have materials or the design uh, quite nailed. But it was a cheap and easy way to learn to fly. Cheap and easy. That would describe myself. <laughs> <laughs> So, since we're talking about this and gliders and not going around, uh, Thomas, item number 17 in the feedback notebook, um, he says, I've been listening for almost a year now, always interesting, sometimes hilarious. And there's a picture uh, that he gave us. Uh, I couldn't find the toga button is the, uh, is the caption for this photo, and it's a glider that is lodged in some trees, it looks like at the end of a field. And it looks it like looks like the end of a field. It looks like they were probably coming in to, to land, maybe. Or that's what I'm so. assuming. Or maybe the fields on the other side of the trees, and they just yeah, they were short. I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah. I'm imagining that he just had too much energy. Too much energy <laughs> and floated, 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 floated. Oh, this is not going to work. Let me try to get above these trees, and it didn't I mean, work. It looks like the trees just kind of caught him. You yeah. know, if you can imagine, like nice. Uh, very graceful looking glider and it's just dunk, yep. into the yeah. tree. definitely can be used again 
The, uh, oh, the back yeah. half doesn't look very badly damaged. No. You can't always <laughs> go around. <laughs> if you're a glider. Yes. All right. Excellent. Um, thanks, PJ, for sending in your f- for feedback. And also, Thomas, for the, uh, the quick pick. Uh, going to item 10. What do we have? Some kind of a flying we, we object. A, we a, have a moth. In a the, moth flying right. around here inside of our hotel room or my hotel room. Um, Logan sends us some audio feedback. He says, I haven't sent in any audio in a while. Here you go. Okay. Thanks, Logan. Let's uh, take a listen. Hey, guys. This is Logan up in North Dakota. Haven't sent in any audio feedback in a while, so I thought I'd share something. Um, it's hot up here, uh, 90 degrees and crazy humid lately. Um, not fun, especially when you're delivering all those packages that Miami Rick is flying around. So, um, anyways, just got done listening to episode 431 and just had a quick observation in regards to Michael's feedback about the Swift Air 737 flight. And this, this is more to do with flight aware or flight radar 24 and sites like that. But um, I noticed he had sent in a screenshot of that flight with the reported speeds and altitude. Um, just one observation, those speeds that are reported are, it's actually ground speed, not indicated airspeed. And the only reason I point that out is because of the 250 knot rule or under 10,000 feet. I, I know a few guys that have gotten some negative feedback or screw or been scrutinized about that rule, particularly guys who posted videos on YouTube, they'll have a speed gauge from their videos and it'll indicate something crazy high like 270 280 290 and they're under 10,000 feet so just wanted to point that out but then that brings up the question to me is do pilots get busted for breaking the 250 knot speed limit under 10,000 feet very often because as far as i know Air traffic control is seeing ground speed as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I need to also ask RH and AG on their podcast. But I've always been curious about that. Anyways, thanks for the show, guys. Um, Not a whole lot going on up here. The delivery business is pretty busy, as you can imagine, with all this going on. Um, I am getting back up into the air a little bit. I've got some time in a Bonanza and the 172 I normally fly, and I'm actually working on getting checked out in a Belanca Viking. Pretty neat plane um, with wooden wing spars in it, so that'll be lots of fun. Um, anyways, thanks again, guys, and hope to hear from you soon. Bye. My first GA flight was in a Belanca Viking, actually, leaving out of Mobile. Nice. 
Regional Airport or Bates Field back then, back in the 70s. You flew an airplane called a Balonka? Balonka. Viking. Yes, a Viking. Actually, a Viking. Viking. Because I'm Nielsen from Viking Heritage. That makes sense. Well, we're going to have to find you a hat now, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, good point made regarding the speeds that are on these sites these uh flight following sites uh they're they're reflecting the ground speed and yes uh very often the speeds that you're going to be showing as ground speed are much higher than the indicated airspeed yeah. uh so yeah that that's a good point um the point i was going to make was that i don't know about the united states and how common it is to have uh, mode s uh, out there um, but uh, the transponders nowadays uh, in modern aircraft can transmit a lot of information. Uh, for example, uh, London Air Traffic Control uh, knew exactly what indicated airspeed I was flying. And uh, if they asked me to fl- select a new airspeed, they knew what airspeed I had even selected. Uh, so they knew what height I was flying at, for example. And if they cleared me to a new height, they could see what height I had selected in the window of the autopilot there to uh, demand descent to confirm that I was actually descending to the correct height they'd uh, allocated. So, big, yeah, big it's quite... Big brother. Was, yeah. yeah, I was definitely going to say that. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's quite likely that that system will eventually, when everyone else catches up, um, proceed all around the world. And um, air traffic control will be able to see exactly what parameters you are flying your aircraft at. So the days of air traffic controllers having to gauge the wind and uh, work out uh, what your indicated speed is uh, compared with your speed across the tube, uh, pretty much uh, gone, I would hope, pretty soon. Yeah. Modus is all the data exchange or adds all that in, in addition to the altitude, correct? Good point. Reporting. I should have yeah. said that. Yeah, but yeah. but very few uh, I don't. places have the capability of actually seeing what I'm setting in my own automation. Yeah, I, I don't. I, we don't have that at my airline for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, they're third world countries, so yeah, I'd expect that. Oh, okay. oh, okay. Well, it's like that. Okay. <laughs> Are you talking about the United? Was he? I, I think. I think he was. I oh, think he was. Wow. Yeah. yeah well, He's calling yeah. us uncivilized. I, I sorry. I was used to flying in London Control, so you know, I, I get used to different standards. Come out here. We'll go out at a little grass patch and take a plane without a radio. Yeah, yeah, you can still do that in the UK. There's, there's nothing to stop you if you're in the right airspace. But Bunch of cowboys. You're one of the big boys <laughs> doing the proper job. <laughs> yeah, proper job. I, you know, beer. I, I was just going to say, you know, uh, I we're, we were kind of talking about it, you know, um, you know, 250 below 10 and how big of a deal it is or isn't. Um, I know if, if you go in the, out of O'Hare a lot, they expect you to do 300 in the descent until they tell you to slow down. Well, a lot of times they'll bring you the 10 and they will just say to send down the 7,000 and they don't tell you to slow the 250. So it's on you to slow down. You have to remember to slow the 250. You've got to remember to slow the Now, there's some modes of our descent that will not descend below 10 until you're at 250. And the the CRJ, you don't have that capability. Right. You're just using vertical speed. Yeah, you're just using vertical speed. I've I've, I've had the conversation a few times like uh, like we're going through 9,500 and you go, I think 
that it's still a rule that we have to be below 250 yeah. knots at this point. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <My> Generally, <laughs> the, the practice that, that at my airline is you get the 260 and then you start your descent because mm-hmm. you're within 10 knots. Yeah. The data lag between you and the controllers such that it's going to show 250 by the time you get below 10 anyway. So I've been in a few situations, hypothetically, that I may have hypothetically been above 250 knots, like by a hypothetically a lot. Yeah. Trying to get to an airport before the major storm system. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and nobody's ever said anything. And, about. you know, I, I've hypothetically. I, I always say we have a, an amazing tailwind all of a sudden. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> I mean, I, I've hypothetically been told by a controller that I do 320 below 10. Really? For space. Oh. Really? And yeah. did you say, okay, does that mean that they've completely suspended the rules? Well, I, I did this. I looked over and he's like, yeah, we can do that. Like, yeah, sure. We can do that. No, Well, yeah. you know. Hypothetically. Hypothetically yeah. speaking. Yes. Now, uh, Houston um, at Intercontinental for, for many years, um, I don't know, it was more than five years ago, they had a several year program where they kind of got rid of the um, the 250 knots below 10,000 rule when you were departing. And um I, I don't know. I guess it didn't work out well or something uh, because they rescinded the program uh, several years ago. Um, but that was kind of unusual, flying that fast below 10,000. Uh, and Canada, I think, too, below 10. If you're leaving, if you're departing, I don't know if it's still true or not. But um, you could you could accelerate faster than 250 knots yeah. below 10,000 feet depends on the if you're we, departing. We regularly did out of uh, Heathrow. Uh, so we would regularly be told that we were cleared high speed. Uh, in the descent, so we could maintain whatever speed we wanted until they called us to decelerate. Where and uh, it, in the UK? Okay, of course. And and um, of course, on the um, climb out, if you wanted to accelerate early, you could uh, ask for free speed, and uh, if there was no traffic to affect, they would give you permission. So it allowed you to be more efficient if you wanted and get you know the trip going. Yeah. Well, anyway, he made a good point, um, Logan, uh, regarding the fact that, you know, when I, when I was talking about, well, it must have been 10,000 feet, not 9,000 feet because of the speed. And I didn't really consider the fact that uh, with the tailwind, especially going from west to yeah. east, he may really have been at 9,000 feet. So I stand or actually I'm sitting corrected. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you're. At 10,000 feet, you can still fly whatever speed you like, yeah? Yes. That is correct. Yes. So as soon as you go below, yeah. Except you can't go above Mach 1 at this point. Are you sure? Well, I mean, you can. You're not supposed to. (laughs) If you're you're over the ocean, you can. If you're over land, you cannot. Right. Yeah. I've been Mach 1 over land. Where you well, go, of course yeah. you have. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, were, you, were you going to intercept some Russians? I mean, yeah. you've probably been over Mach two, over land. Uh, no, I haven't been that fast. No, oh. what? No, no. What was the fastest jet you've flown? Was it the F four or the F eighteen? Uh, the tornado, sadly. Oh, and how fast <laughs> would oh, that go? Uh, well, it, you had to throttle it back when you reached Mark two because it really started to. Get on a uh, you know accelerate fast. At that point, it really wanted to go considerably faster. So uh, as you as you hit Mark two, it really used to let loose. Wow! Uh, and uh, again, it used to get to um, you know 
seven, eight hundred knots, and it would just want to go faster. It really did. Huh. Uh, you know, want to. It wasn't like it was struggling. Uh, those those ramps uh, moved, and everything became it's like selecting turbo as you came up to those speeds. Really uh-huh. You mentioned you mentioned throttle back, though. The tornado has a, a throttle. Also, I don't know. I had a couple of levers on the left. I forget what was written on them. <laughs> Good catch there. Good I, catch. I mean, I just want to make Good sure job. that we're that we're uh, yeah. you know. I, I, I'll go to a museum and try and find look out. here inside and find out what was written on the left. You want? Well, speak of the devil, the tornado. Uh, item thirteen. Some dude named Pip. I'm not sure. Pip? That must be an acronym for something. Um. Pilot incap- interphalangeal <laughs> joint. It's the PIP uh, joint. That would pilot be a practice? pilot incompetent person. Oh. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, Pip, we, we love, love you, Pip. Pip. He, he Actually, he says, audio feedback attached, hugs and kisses. See, he oh, loves us. Yeah. And we love he him. Does. And let's hear what he has to say. He only loves one of us. <laughs> yeah. I've not pre-screened right, this, so let's, you know, good luck, crossed fingers and all that. Hi there, gang. Captains Jeff, Nick, Rick, Dana, and um, Admiral Steph, and uh, Supreme Allied Commander General Liz. It's uh, it's me, plain old Pilot Pip. I uh, hope everyone's well. Um, listen, got a question for you, for, for Nick, actually, Captain Nick. Uh, Nick, old bean, you tell many a good yarn about some of the uh, many aircraft you've flown, particularly the, the the Phantom, which clearly you have a love for, and the F-18 and others. What you rarely talk about, I've noticed, what you rarely uh, mention on the podcast is your time on the Tornado, the RAF Tornado, which for me, as a, a young lad growing up and RAF crazy and, and, and an aviation enthusiast the tornado was my was my pinup aircraft you know most normal boys at that age had posters of the latest uh, baywatch girl in her swimming costume pinned to their wall i had pictures of the tornado i you know it was my thing that was what i i fantasized about when i dreamt of becoming a pilot was flying the tornado admittedly the the uh the mud mover version the ground attack version i know you flew the f3 but listen i'd love to hear some stories about your time on the tornado maybe you could even find it in your heart to say something nice about the tornado i don't know it can't have been that bad i think we'd all enjoy to hear some good old uh, tornado stories uh and that's it um you know, I did eventually grow up to be a normal boy and have posters of the latest Baywatch girls on my wall, but uh, the truth is the wife gets really mad. <laughs> anyway, catch you all later. Hope you're all well. Bye. What say you, Nick? Anything good to say? Uh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because uh, Pip's quite right. I flew the air defense variant, which was uh, our air defense fighter uh, of really the only one we had uh, for many years. Uh, and um, whilst the tornado did a great job as uh, a bomber, uh, it uh, could penetrate uh, at low level at night using terrain-following radar, very capable, very accurate uh, bombing systems. Uh, had a man in the back there to uh, uh, deliver your weapon load just where you wanted it. Uh, it... Uh, 
Yeah, it had good range. Uh, it did just about everything you wanted it to. It was it was pretty good. Uh, the fighter version uh, was underpowered. It had a poor wing. Uh, it, in the the wing wasn't a high lift wing. It didn't generate a very hard turn uh, in comparison with uh, the aircraft that we regularly flew against. Um, it couldn't fly in military power at very high level. Um, it uh, it was a, an Iron Age airplane in that if you climbed from the Phantom cockpit into the Tornado cockpit, they were very similar, full of ironwork everywhere. Um, they had a couple of uh, TV screens, but mainly iron instruments. Um, so, you know, for those in the Air Force who didn't, do what I did, which was step uh, for some period into the F-18. If you move from the Lightning or the uh, Tornado or whatever into, sorry, the Lightning or the Phantom into the Tornado, uh, you would say, oh, this is a bit faster. This is turns a little better. The radar is a little longer range, perhaps a little more capable. Um, it's It's got track while scan. It's got some clever tricks. Uh, it's very fast. Uh, it's it's not bad. Um, but I had gone via the F-18 and then back to the Tornado. So I'd seen what the rest of the world uh, could do with their uh, aircraft um, designs. And when you looked at what the Tornado uh, ADV was fighting against, the F-18, the F-16, training against is what I should really say since we weren't really doing a lot of fighting. Um, the F-16, um, you know, uh, the Mirage 2000, the Raphael, the Gripen, uh, all those aircraft. Uh, it was an underdog. Uh, it really was quite a, a poorly... Um, it was an aircraft that was uh, a square peg at a round hole. So it, it really wasn't up to the job that we wanted it to do. So it, people start stopped calling it a fighter, and they started calling it an interceptor with an excuse for a, an airplane that just carries missiles and delivers them and can't actually combat, can't perform a decent role if you get into the visual combat environment. So it, from my point of view, the aircraft was incredibly disappointing. I came from the F-18 onto the F-3 Tornado and took a step back, a whole generation of uh, step backwards in capability. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I found it an extremely disappointing airplane to fly. And one of the reasons why I left the Air Force. Um, Along came the Typhoon, <laughs> which was the next aircraft, and we're back where we should have been, but we're now a generation behind the rest of the world because whilst we are, were flying the Typhoon, the rest of the world had moved on to stealth designs, and mm -hmm. the Typhoon is far from a stealthy airplane. So it was an interesting thing, and I actually have a lecture where I compare – um, the F-3, the, that, that generation of swing-wing aircraft, um, and they were very limited. Uh, there's the Tomcat, the F-111, uh, about three Russian ones, and uh, a Tornado. And uh, ask, well, why didn't that design carry on to the next generation? Well, the answer was it wasn't really a very good idea. Um, you know, the swing-wing is very limited capability uh it has some good applications but not many 
Um, so that was the reason I did not like the tornado. Of course, it filled a gap. Uh, it was a great airplane uh, for the bomber boys. They did some fantastic jobs in it. But quite honestly, if you give an Air Force an airplane and say go to war with it, they'll do the best they can with any airplane. Uh, I think we could have done better had we designed something uh, that was more capable. But that's just a personal opinion. Very good. I think that's what he was looking for. Um, you know, it's funny when you when you talk about the various um, generations of fighters or aircraft in general, but fighters specifically. Um, one of the wonderful things on day one that we were listening to on our Oh, journey yeah, yeah, yeah. was an audiobook that Stephen has been listening to yep. and uh, he's going to look it up right now yep, and yep. it i am i'm going to buy this thing and start from the beginning because yeah, i think we started really when good. i was started listening to it, it was like on we, chapter yeah, we, five yeah, or it's something. um lord of the uh, sky by uh, dan hampton it's, it's a uh, great book yeah, and it, we were listening to the audio version of it yeah it, it covers uh, aerial combat from um, the uh, Red Baron to the F-16, and he, he focuses in on the different aircraft, but also um, different aces for the different time periods and the evolution of uh, fighter combat and everything. It's it, it's good. Um, what was that one guy, that German guy's name that he... Marseille. Marseille, yeah. I mean, this guy went, uh, what was it, four sorties in one day and shot down 18 aircraft? 17 or 18 Yeah, 17 uh, or kills 18 in one day. In one day. Yeah, he was hmm. a German, um, and he was flying the uh, BF one hundred and nine, and he was just not only was he an amazing fighter ace, but apparently he was quite a ladies' man. Quite the ladies' man. <laughs> quite. I mean, I think he had more kills. Um, well, anyway, he, he how many? Like he had like one hundred and he, he totaled. I think he totaled thirty um, above a hundred and I think it was a hundred and fifty something total kills. What was it? Iron Cross, Iron Cross with swords, oak leaves, and then and I think he had diamonds, diamonds as well. Which he is one of only eight German soldiers in World War II that get that honor. And he was like, when he died, he was twenty three. Twenty three, yeah. And he, and he died wow. because he had an oil cooler go out on his aircraft, and he jumped out and hit the horizontal stabli- uh, stabilizer. <laughs> I'd never heard of this guy. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um. But I was just, we were listening to this thinking, oh my gosh, this guy was so incredibly talented and he could fly the airplane. Yeah, what was funny was uh, when he first started, his commanders said he didn't have, um, what was it? I think the way the word was, he wasn't um, applying himself enough because he was fighting the Battle of Britain and he just wasn't performing well. And then they sent him to Africa and he's just dropping fighters one right after the other. Right. He. Wow. Yeah, very very interesting character. Um, perhaps a plain tale in the in the future. So, where did he rate the uh, ADV, the air defense variant of the tornado, or didn't he get that far? No, he didn't. You know, <laughs> this is back in World War Two. Yeah, yeah, we haven't. Gotten I think that you said far. it was for the F sixteen. So, no, no, yeah, no. it goes up to there. We're just we have to the book. Far yeah, that was just like one of the chapters of the book. Yeah. But right, anyway, okay. the book was itself was talking about the different countries and the and the the fighters, the the airplanes that they had. The limitations, the advantages that some had over others, and yeah. it was fascinating. It really, is. It really, really is. Amazing um, I, yeah, I, I would venture to say they'd probably cover at least the Phantom and the Tornado. So, okay. If it already isn't in the APG library, it's going to be uh, almost immediately because Liz is Actually. telling me that we're going to put, you know, make that an entry in the uh, APG library, and it's uh, 
really, really fascinating stuff. So. And, I, and I will say just, I, I obviously haven't flown the tornado because I, what? Yeah, I haven't flown it. No, I, you know what? No. I, I have to admit, I've never flown it either. No. Well, there you go. But uh, I, I've seen it in, in, in uh, Duxford and everything. It, and the tail just—it looks goofy. It looks a little goofy. It's just, got a huge fin. Yeah, uh, because it's a Mach two aircraft and it's not that long. So you know, if you're going to keep uh, you know uh, stability at very high Mach numbers, you've got to have a reasonable size. Uh, yeah, it, it used um, to be fair. Most aircraft of that generation have two fins. Uh, if you stick them one on the other, it'll look like a tornado fin. Um, so it's not like that that big in comparison. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just it's one of them instead of two of them. But the one thing I did like about it was it had thrust reverses instead of a parachute, which was a great piece of kit. Probably cheaper of it too. Could have just yeah, could have just put decent brakes on it. That would have been fine. Um, <laughs> nah. But it didn't it didn't brakes? have a multi mode radar. Uh, it only had two ro- two modes, uh, pulse and pulse Doppler, which is like the Phantom. Uh, it didn't have medium PRF like uh, the F eighteen, the F fifteen. Um, PRF. It had lots of yep. drawbacks. Yeah, what's what's PRF? Pulse recurrent frequency. Oh yeah. Oh, so okay. um, yeah, of course. Obviously, so, uh, I mean, I didn't want to say pilots. it because I didn't want you guys to feel bad. <laughs> All right. well, thanks. Uh, thanks. thanks. Yeah, Always that. thinking about other people's feelings. That's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> medium PRF gives you all aspect capability at, at medium range. So um, short range, you can go to pulse. Long range, you go to uh, PD. And uh, in the middle, you've got, uh, you know, uh, medium PRF, which is what most modern fighters have. They've got a multi-mode radar, a true multi-mode radar, the... Uh, ADV didn't. Um, eh. Yeah, it, it was all right. I, yeah. I did three flying it, and uh, was happy to leave. It had manual wing sweep, uh, which was in the Comcat had a completely automatic wing sweep, which is really what you wanted. Manual wing sweep, you had to remember to move the wings at the appropriate time, and you had to remember uh, um, two speeds and two Mach numbers. Uh, for each wing position and two negative Gs and two positive G numbers for each wing position. Uh, and it was all done by memory because there was no automatic uh, handling. Too complicated. Um, yeah, I was about to say, if, if you are if you get yourself into a situation where you're fighting with somebody, it's going to, I mean, do you end up making a turn or something? You don't adjust the wing sweep. You're going to stall out, right? Or Well, we, we killed pilots because of it. That's how uh, you know you were in the right position. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Exactly. In training, we had a guy who, uh, you know, uh, tried to bug out from a fight. And, uh, you know, the when you try to accelerate and descend away, you naturally put the wings all the way back to 67. And uh, he put the burners in and he was descending hard. And um, which, if you had automatic wings, we wouldn't have happened. The wings yeah. would have gone back in stages as your speed increased. And his navigator shouted at him as he uh, hit about 2,000 feet above the ocean. And he pulled back, but with the wings all the way back, it just changed the nose position. The aircraft continued to descend until it hit the water. Uh, The navigator survived the crash, which is why we know what happens. The pilot sadly didn't. Um, But that's the sort of thing that happens when you are trying to manually move your wings around and trying to do everything else. Wait a minute. So we only have the we only have the navigator's word about this. Mm. (laughs) Where's the engineer at? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Uh, That's what you need. You need to engineer to work your wing sweep. 
Yeah. That's that's what you needed. Or maybe uh, make it uh, automatic like a Tomcat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it had an automatic wing sweep system, but we were never allowed to use it. Why? <laughs> what was the reasoning on that? Uh, well, when it was first accepted into service, uh, Boscombe Down, the test pilots who uh, did all the work on the airplane, said that uh, during airway refueling, uh, the speed at which we refueled was just the same trigger speed for the wings to move from 25 to 35 or whatever the positions were. Uh, and so the wings would hunt back and forth, and it's, it's really not good for airway refueling. You need to change that. British Aerospace said, well, that's very expensive. Uh, you're going to have to pay a lot more money for us to change that. And therefore said, okay, well, don't bother. We'll just use all money. Sweet things. It never got cleared could, for could operational you, use. Could you not just have like an inhibit switch to click on? For aerial you, refueling? Yeah. And then yeah. click it off when you got well, done. I don't know all the, uh, yeah. that would be very sensible. And I would have been happy to do that. But I don't know all the ins and outs. But yeah. the fact was that I flew it for many years and didn't ever get to use automatic wing sweep. It sounds like a this CRJ is... to me. Oh, <laughs> you, have, you have wing sweep on the, like the CRJ? No, we don't. Like, it's just we, the lack of things that we had that we oh, wish we yeah. had. Yeah. Like, the two, like the 200? Yeah, the 200. <laughs> okay. Um, leading edge devices. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if we had leading edge devices on the 200, we our final approach speed would be about 105, 110. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Without Which it, you'd never be allowed to use because like you're way too slow. Yeah. I, I, uh, hold on. Everyone I, would drive up your back sides. Oh, yeah. About 136 is what we yeah, did. You would never about. be allowed to use yeah. it. You're right. No, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, Maintain faster. Uh, faster, mate. Yeah. 170 until. 10 feet from touchdown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're Nick, apparently it's 150 to 160. So, yeah. You know. uh, and and it, that, well, that's a good speed for most airplanes. Yeah, it is. It really is. I don't think a Cessna 150 can get that fast, but <laughs> it, it can in a it 90 can. degree descent <laughs> with a strong tailwind. And, yeah. and, and Mike's uh, uh, Musketeer, like a uh, Beechcraft Musketeer, yeah, you'll never see that. 100 <laughs> knots is pretty much it, <laughs> which is fine. It works great. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, last uh, item we'll probably have a chance to cover today is 18 from Greg. Uh, Laversha from Down Under. Now, you know, you'll remember that we. Oh, I'm sorry. Laversha. Thank you. A little voice from heaven. Just a little angel just spoke into my ear and mm. said. Levershaw. Um, he wrote us, and we were talking about um, some feedback from our our Finnish listener, uh, Eero, and he was drinking some... Well, let me read what Greg has to say here. Hi, APG crew. Greg from Sydney here with a comment on episode 431, and specifically Eero's comment about drinking a mediocre Australian bulk beer. Now, this is Jeff speaking here. I was thinking, oh my, he he must have been offended by the reference to mediocre yeah. bulk yeah, beer. The Fosters, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. Well, no. Stay with us here. Continuing with uh, Greg. As an Australian, I'm deeply offended. Uh, yeah, see? Deeply. By deeply offended by the deeply offended at airlinepilotguy.com. Um, I'm deeply offended by the comment. Mediocre Australian bulk beer. 
No one in Australia drinks that Foster's rubbish. That's why it's bulk shipped to Europe. We keep the good stuff for ourselves. <laughs> Euro was drinking mediocre bulk beer. It wasn't Australian. <laughs> Cheers all and keep COVID safe. Greg. Well, I don't know. I've spent Leadership. a few years in Australia and I've seen plenty of taps with Fosters written on them. Yeah. And there are, other, there are other mediocre bulk beers like. Just thinking, just uh, thinking of their, um, you know, ad Swan campaigns. Lager. <laughs> Three X's. Uh, yeah. VB4X. Yeah. Two is. Ah, two is. Oh, rubbish. God. Yeah, what awful. a rubbish Ooh. beer that is. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> VB I quite liked. But uh, yeah. Well, I think we have to say that. Every country in the world has some really crappy beer. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, I was telling Jeff last well, night yeah. about some horrible beer that I knew about in Atlanta. I mean, I, there was one that was supposed to be, I think, it, what did I say it was? Um, it was supposed to be some kind of sour, and it tasted like they had just went down to the Gulf of Mexico, got a scoop of water, and poured it in a can. <laughs> it was that bad. It was nothing but salt. It was awful. It was just awful. Just salt, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yes. suppose Foster's would be the equivalent of Budweiser or something like that, you know. Uh, being not truly proud of, uh, you know, having in your Well, country. that you find, like, the world around, yeah. You know. I, yeah. It, I mean, it's you a, leave, I, You leave the States, you go somewhere else, and it's like, yeah, we've got Budweiser as our American beer representative. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. Why would you want that? Yeah. Like, um, don't drink it, that. It, is Foster's actually an Australian beer, or is it one of those beers that is part of like Owned a, by a conglomeration? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I think it's actually an Australian beer. Um, yeah. yeah, you see it in the. I mean, their Australian. their ad campaign here was always Foster's Australian for beer. Yeah, but they say yeah. Outback's Australian for food too, and that's, that's true. Yeah, it's, it's not, not. It's not nothing to do with Australia. No, no, yeah, no. I, no. <laughs> I think it originated in Australia, so I don't okay. think there's any worry there. But I mean, but nowadays, we, Australia is like uh, most other countries. They've got a fantastic selection of uh, craft beer um, breweries, um, produce some great stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's yeah, the way to go. They, they do. And they are more expensive, too, because they're outside. What was what it? Um, the drink? They have a word for it, where it's the low gravity beers. It's um, swill. I don't know. It's something like the. <laughs> The sipping beers, but like if you go anything that's crap, yeah, yeah water. <laughs> no, uh, um, session, S session. Yeah, there's session, beer, like but, a session beer. Yeah, but, but then they like, call it something you else. Go to like this, like it. You you will not find a ten percent triple hop IPA in Australia, but, but you will find it here in this hotel room. You will, or in Wilmington, North Carolina, where it's brewed. Yes, yes. So yay, North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. These North well, Carolinians. I'm, I'm pretty sure they they go in that wow. way, uh, but uh, yeah, they they they've got some pretty light beers too because uh, you know uh, a white duck. They used to have an annual competition. Uh, it, there is some alcohol in it, but uh, they had a competition to see if anyone could drink enough to uh, blow into a breathalyzer <laughs> and fail the breathalyzer, and no one ever managed to achieve it. <laughs> so, uh, is that yeah. one of those non-alcoholic beverages that actually has like just a smidgen of yeah, it alcohol it, in it? The yeah. Black duck was the strong one, and the white duck, uh, it, it swan lager. You had a, a black and a white, and gotcha. uh, we it was well, we always used to call it black duck and white duck because the swan looked like a duck. <laughs> <laughs> so Neil, um, yeah. Neil in the chat room uh, must have had a beer very similar to the one you're describing. Oh boy! Uh, I've just had a can of Wake Up and Smell the Goes, a Goza, blueberry and salt. 
disgusting. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't sound good at all, Neil. There, there are some good ghosts out there, but yeah, there are blueberry and salt. Hmm. Yeah, salt. So it sounds like the the There's theme a here is key lime pie one. That's pretty Ooh, good. Yeah, I've had that uh, one. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Mm-hmm. What used to amuse me about Australia was the fact that uh, they used to love drinking their beer ice, ice cold. <laughs> so the glasses came out of a, a freezer, so they were sub-zero, and they would pour a beer into it. And because it's a warm country and the beer got uh, warm pretty quick, they'd only serve it to you in small glasses. So you get something the size of a shot glass. Uh, with beer, and you'd take two sips and it would be gone, and then you'd ask for another one, and the guy would go to the freezer and get and pour you another little bit. So, and they had various sizes from, See, Nick, and they all a, had different names. They were weird. That's actually a thing around the world, except for in the UK, where we actually like our beers to be ice cold and in a frosty glass of some sort. Well, to be depending fair, on the outside around, temperature, it could be in a larger or smaller pint glass, or just if put a, I'm in a on warm it. climate. I like a cold beer. Uh, we don't have a warm climate here. So I, I mean, I, I, when I go to a, a, a bar, like the first day in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So they, yeah. the, they automatically take the, the beer, the glass out of the freezer and it's like, you know, really, really cold. And I was kind of like, oh, I forgot to ask this person not to give me a glass that's frozen. Yeah. Give me just like a room temperature glass. Uh, but then after I had my first beer, she wanted to take my glass and give me another chilled glass. And I said, no, no, please. I'll just, I want to use the one that you already have given me because I find that the beers, I don't like warm beers, but I like beers that are not 32 degrees or 28 degrees. I like beers that are probably in the 45 to 50 degree range. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember which brewery I went to, but they were going through the tour and everything. They were talking about, you know, chemistry of beer, blah, blah, blah. Um, Generally, you don't want a glass to be in anything that's less than 40 degrees Fahrenheit because it will distort the taste of the beer. It does. It really. Now, if you're talking, I'm talking about ales here, not lagers. Yeah, yeah. You're drinking a lager, then, yeah, you want a really cold beer. Especially if it's like PBR. That's because it destroys the taste. No, yeah, you let a lager warm up and you go, this tastes like piss. Right? Yeah. It's loggers are not intended to be drunk at a warm or even a cellar temperature. Yeah. But I like cellar temperature actually. That's that's when the beer really I don't care for loggers. There we go. Yeah. Well you see, I think it has its place. I I love a a Indian lager. It's not bad at all. That's Uh, true. That's an IPA, isn't it? An Indian lager. (laughs) I'm just saying, yeah. I mean what is an Indian lager? I don't know what that is. Well it's just like um Oh, what's the name of the one I'm thinking of, though? Oh, just like a regular lager that you get from yeah, India, like yeah, um, yeah. I, I something like the to do African with, uh, with so, the lion. It's got uh, curry in it. No, no, no. Okay. It's just like a what? What? What are the? Uh, come on, people, help us in the chat room. What? What are the great? There's Kingfisher, Kingfisher, and, uh, Kingfisher Cobra. And, uh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, all I these kind of lagers. I gotcha. Yeah, those are fine. Now I understand. And in Africa, saying. you know, you've got Castle and you've got uh, Tusker and Stark and all those. Yeah, Singha is a uh, Thai. Well, I said lovely. They're they're great when they're cold. I you think. don't want to drink a warm one. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. yeah. Sorry, what was it's that? Not good. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, if you could just grab that uh, clip from Nick. Well, I I have so many. Just <laughs> yeah, good He's ones. Bored doing it now. Yeah. I, uh... Oh, it's time. Liz is telling me you guys need to shut up. 
because it's yeah. uh, three hours. Shut up talking about beer yeah. and talk about airplanes for a change. Shut up. No, no, we, we rounded out the show with uh, with beer. Talk. Yeah, you know, this is not just an aviation podcast. No, it's, it's it's infotainment, and we don't we don't talk specifically or exclusively about aviation here. It's not really info either because we never really reach fifty percent. Well, you know. If you only shoot for fifty percent, you have a you have a lot more more success. Set the bar low, yes, and they won't expect as much. Exactly, and Good point. you know well, that's man. that's you like what, the shiny airplane. Didn't you used to fly is. this, Jeff? What's that? That shiny airplane behind me. Uh, no, I never flew that. That's a T. Um, what do they call that? Ah, uh, Starfighter T something. Shooting star? <laughs> is it a shooting star? Um, no, it, it might be. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't do that. That was um, okay. Was I would have loved old. to. I would have loved to have flown that airplane, though. Guys that were uh, in my time frame, and even in the eighties, they were still flying that airplane in the uh, in tech, um, as like um, for training for the other more advanced fighters. Like target practice and that kind of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. But um, anywho. T33? T30, that's it. Yeah, shooting star. Yeah. Shooting yeah. star. Kelly, Kelly Clark has a different uh, name for it. <laughs> Who does? Oh, yeah. I think it was, oh, uh, Kelly, oh, come on. Oh, wow. I think it was. I think it was. Uh, no, no. Was, was that a typo? <laughs> I think that was a typo. Best typo <laughs> ever. <laughs> a shiting star. Like a shining star. Yes. That's right. That's like right. all of you in the chat room. <laughs> to me, you're all shining stars. All right, I'm wrapping it up. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> so Liz just wants us to finish this. Uh, obviously, Liz has something to do better than this. She already got her freezer. Uh, yeah, I know. Oh, well, we were the train is already point. off the yeah, tracks. We're past that point. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, with that, let's tell you that you should. Dear listener, especially if you're new to the show, if you want to learn more about what the heck is going on here, head over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website where you'll find information about the crew and the community. What, hey, where is Rick? Why didn't he ever show up? We, a question he we would like to have answered. without leave today. Yes, AWOL sure. again. Dang it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so learn about the crew, the community, the uh, APG library, our uh, librarian, uh, Liz, uh, not Liz, uh, Tiffany uh, manages that. And we have a, a Plain Tales page where Nick puts m even more good information to uh, supplement his wonderful Plain Tales um, merchandise, the coffee fund. You can learn about that. And there's probably more, even more. Yeah. Just all kinds, all of, kinds of stuff, stuff. Yeah. there, airlinepilotguy.com. And we're also on the social meets. Hey, head on over to twitter.com and you can find us at APG Crew. We're all there. Find our individual information pinned to the top of the page. Good place to find out when we're going to be recording these shows live so you can join in the um, uh, mayhem that is a live recording. And you can also head over to facebook.com slash airlinepilotguy. Lots of good community chat going on there. And uh, Instagram, I promise I'm going to start posting some pictures there again. I need to share, sure, share sure. some of Nick's wonderful artwork to, to that page so it can be readily accessible. But maybe just follow him on Instagram. You'll find it there, too. Um, are you old plot there as well, Nick? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> Did you just say old we'll twat? We'll find that out for you. Old twat? No. Old 
Oh, plot. Moving okay. swiftly on, I think we should yes. move right into Slack. Did you, um, you got Steven there with you. Is Hillel also is, with is, you guys on the road trip? Did you notice uh, you were back in that area? Was he? Hillel! Hillel! Are you there? What's that? Let's see. Oh, look at that! Taking a shower. I hear the I hear the shower. It's Slack time, man! Slack! Slack! Okay, but I'm dripping wet! That's fine. Come on over here. Wait, Steven, move out of the Yeah, yeah, we'll get Give him here. some room. Yeah. He's going to tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Wow, he really is dripping wet. I mean, he is. I'm soaking right here. We'll have to get him back on the roof. Yeah. Go get back to the bathroom, please. Okay. On the roof? Yeah, he's been riding on the roof with us. <laughs> Mind if I use your razor, Jeff? <laughs> yes. <laughs> God. All right. Seems a little personal. <laughs> you know, it's always like that. All right. Well. Someone someone buy Hillel some razors. <laughs> yeah, he own. needs to have his own. He's, he's just got to go down to the front desk. They give him out for free. Yeah. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that is Take true. Take a walk, Hillel. Put a towel on first. <laughs> And, of course, we need to big round of applause for our producer, director. You just don't realize. Round of applause today. This Piper in the background. I mean, I'm so glad I have this talkback channel. She really communicates a lot with It's highly entertaining. (laughs) It's very entertaining. We should probably pipe her in. Down on a completely separate feed so people can hear (laughs) it. Oh, right. Just have the Wiz feed. They can either listen to the actual show or just what's being said on the the back channel. (laughs) I said pipe her in, not... Oh, that's right. Her name is Liz Piper. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just got that. Wow. Very good. All right. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. See y'all. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Meep, meep. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine 
line, how to guide. I fly, oh. 